Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And ah, it is that time of the year again for the uh, the annual uh, Bay Area Playwrights um Festival, uh, which is hosted by the uh, Bay Area Playwrights Foundation. And, well, you missed the first week, but it's so wonderful that you get a chance to see the plays again if you already started. And if you didn't like me, you haven't missed out completely. (laughs) And we are so excited to have um, the new executive um, artistic director uh, and director in the studio this morning, Jessica Burt. How do you pronounce your last very last part of your name, uh, Jessica? Beza. Beza, Jessica Burr Beza. And uh, and also one of the playwrights, uh, Jessica's also a director of one of the plays, To Saints and Stars. And uh, Deneen Reynolds-Knox, who is a playwright in her play, Babes in, is it Holland or Holland? Holland. Holland, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Thank you Thank for you. inviting me. Yeah, thanks oh, for having me. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's um, This is like one of my favorite times of the year to just, gosh, to sit in a theater and in this case um, sitting, um, I guess, in uh, Zoom land and just listening, you know, and watching and participating in all these great uh, works and just, you know, being transported, literally, and uh, so really looking forward to to seeing all the plays. So let me let me uh, introduce you first, uh, Jessica, and then you could tell us about the uh, the festival, and you could tell us about Deneen and her work, and how you happen to to choose the uh, the playwrights whose work um, you're sharing this particular year. Um, Jessica uh, Burbiza, as I already mentioned, um, has served as Executive Artistic Director since October 2019 and held leadership positions at the following organizations, the Old Globe, La Jala Playhouse, San Diego Rep, and um, how do you pronounce this one? Um, Mo'olelo. 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 Yeah, that's a nice name. Um, Where is that one? 
Um, it's in San Diego. Mololo um, means family in Hawaiian. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. And you are, um, you write in your bio, committed to community building, fostering diverse artists, and advancing the new play field. You um, were the associate director on the Tony Award-winning new musical, Come From Away, and developed new work at Theater Works Silicon Valley, American Conservatory Theater, the Old Globe, La Jolla Playhouse, San Diego Rep, Diversionary Theater, Seattle Repertory Theater, Ford's Theater, among others. And you have an MA in nonprofit leadership and management, um, USDA, USD, USD. So, um, Jessica, why don't you tell us about the festival and then tell us a little bit about Denise, and I'll let you introduce her. Um, yeah, I mean, the festival this year, uh, this is my first year at Playwrights <laughs> Foundation, um, you know, and everything's completely different. Uh, normally, <laughs> we get to gather people in person, as you say, uh, and this year, we are all online and experimenting, you know, putting things online, but also staying committed to our mission to champion and support emerging contemporary writers, which is super exciting that we can still, um, you know, work on developing the plays and bringing um, the stories to light. And Playwrights Foundation really focuses, you know, for the festival, we get, we have an open application uh, process. And so 735 writers submitted their plays this year for the festival. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through a reading process and we have volunteer readers. So we have a national reading committee of 150 people who read all 735 of those plays. And then we narrow those down to 135 plays and our semifinalists and then 30 plays and our finalists. And then ultimately the five that we have in the festival with um, Kameen. So it's, it's very much also um, a democratic process and like listening to readers who are advancing and championing scripts that are moving forward. And then at the end, you know, looking at this year as we were looking at the final five, it was also thinking about what plays could we still be able to support in, if we were online. I think at that point we still didn't know exactly um, what was going to happen um, as well as, you know, we're always thinking about what, what are stories that, we haven't maybe necessarily heard in the American theater and we need to hear. Um, and that's, you know, um, Deneen's work with Babes in Holand focuses on um, Sierra and Karen, who uh, are two black students at a predominantly white college, and they find each other and, you know, form a bond over their shared love for R&B girl groups. Um, and then quickly discover something deeper with each other um, and form a deeper relationship and self-discovery and also, you know, the discovery as all of us go through in college of who are you, who am I, who do I love? Um, and, it, you know, it was just such um, a beautiful piece that we just felt people needed to hear and to know about um, and especially in this time um, when we need to be reminded of 
love and community and things that are possible. Um, it felt like the perfect time. And Deneen's actually been a finalist in the Bay Area Playwrights Festival back in 2017. Um, and it also, and so, Clarice Foundation has been familiar with her work um, in the past and just very excited to be able to have her in the festival this year and to be able to get her work out into the world in such a unique way. One of the opportunities of us being online is people can tune in from all over and that is happening. People are tuning in from all over the country, all over the world, um, and you know, at Playwrights Foundation, we also like to um, consider ourselves the launch pad, you know, for playwrights through the festival and kind of um, getting their work known. Um, so we're very excited to have Deneen, and I'd love, you know, to let her kind of talk a little bit more about her piece. She could do it even more justice than I can. Um, but, yeah, that's some of the process of how how we got here. Yes, thank you, Jessica. Now, go ahead, Denine, um, and, you know, tell us about about your work and also uh, about the process, um, since this is not your first time, um, I guess, submitting work uh, to the uh, Bay Area Playwrights um, Foundation for this festival. I was noticing um, in your bio that um, you've gotten lots of awards for your work, and what I thought was really interesting is that um, you have an MFA in film from Columbia University, and definitely I could see um, from what I read of your play how, you know, it's very cinematic insofar as, you know, um, uh, the dialogue, you know, really really leads the work quite a bit, you know, and your characters, um, you know, um we can we learn a lot about them, you know, through through the uh through your, your wonderful language that you use to uh to to write, you know, their particular their um particular personalities. Oh, well, thank you. I think that part of my film school training and part of the reason I went to film school is I was interested in intimate spaces and so now that I'm writing plays that's still something that I pursue is the conversations we have in intimate spaces and I was really thinking about for two young black women attending in a, a predominantly white university in 1996 what would a dorm room space mean I was thinking a lot about sanctuary and the places where we feel like we can be ourselves. And so what would that mean for these two young women to have a space where they could listen to TLC and SWV and um, talk about their lives and talk about their fears? And also the play explores the, the stress of college, the financial stress of college, too, um, in big ways and small, all those little, all those little um, financial pressures that students face in college that we don't even think about sometimes. Um, like you still have to buy toiletries, you still have to buy things for yourself when you're in college, and so um, it was really exploring all of all of that 
when thinking about these two characters. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You. We've got um. Uh, was it Tyron, uh Sierra, and um, and then we have we have Cat, who is um, uh, Sierra's roommate. Yeah. Yes. And I noticed I noticed that there there's um, you know, sort of hints around around class as well. You know, in the work, um, and you know, and and pe- people's parents, and um, and also the whole thing around: Are you in school to for an education, um, or are, is this sort of like it's just what you do? You know, in your family, and mm-hmm. you know, it's. I mean, of course, education is important, but for some communities, it's really important. <laughs> you know, right. because it can it can determine what happens in your life. If you don't have an education, then there's certain things you can't do. Um, and uh, and so, you know, the the two um, African American characters they they sort of look at this whole idea of education in a different way than, let's say, Cat might, um, who has a boyfriend. And and she's very much involved with it, you know, with her boyfriend. So you know, it's kind of interesting, um, you know, the dynamics that are at play just in the the, the small amount of the play that I was able to look at. I'm really well, it was interesting to, to sing it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's interesting to work on this play right now because mm-hmm. we're in a time where everyone was on campus the beginning of March, and then mm-hmm. everyone went home. And, you know, unless you're using some kind of artificial background, everyone could see into each other's homes. And so when you're on campus, you feel like, oh, we're all coming from the same, you know, we're all here. We're all the same. There's a sameness, you know, the the campus T-shirts, all you know, the campus colors. Um, forget what was back home, you're here now, we're focusing on education, but now everyone went back home, so you can't hide those things. You know, some students have a room and a desk where they can do all their work. Some students have no rooms they can be alone in to do their work. And so I have found it so interesting to hear professors um, in this moment talking about, Mm -hmm. wow, I didn't realize that I had students that, you know, didn't really had no room in there, like we're in a packed apartment full of people. And I didn't realize that some students, you basically lived in a forest, you know, with the, just in a house with nothing around them, and they were quite mm-hmm. wealthy. And so just the things that people are realizing about each other um, in this moment is really interesting. And we've talked about that a lot in our rehearsals because mm-hmm. it's, it is such an interesting moment to think about class and to think about how it's really our homes are really invading our courses and our classes now. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that that's so true. Um I actually uh I I'm a professor at a college, a junior college, and oh, wow. I remember when yeah, when we were Actually, we we weren't in spring break yet. They switched it around because all of a sudden we have to cancel all of our our face-to-face classes. And so professors are like, oh, man, I've never taught online before. How do I do this? (laughs) (laughs) So 
So instead of our our spring break happening, um, you know, uh, what is it, three weeks from when everything shut down, they flipped it, and so uh, we had our break, and then we had three weeks of of instruction around how to get up and going, you know, online for all four classes or however many classes your person might be teaching. Uh, that wasn't the case with me because I already had, I think, uh, I had three, no, I had two two online classes and two face-to-face. One I had to just cancel, which was kind of sad. It, I was um, teaching a class in a homeless shelter for women, and there was no way we could um, do anything with that one, so we had to just cancel it. It was a college readiness class. Mm. Yeah, it was. I, I really liked that class. Um, but then the other one, we had students that didn't have technology, so the so the uh, district Peralta had to go out and buy all these um, Chromebooks, like thousands of them. <laughs> and, yes, you know, yes, for that all was the a students. huge problem. Yeah, yeah. But then, okay, you get the Chromebook, but then you have no internet. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. so it's like, okay, what do you do? There's no internet. And so they said, well, you can come sit in the parking lot, you know, distanced, and use the internet as a college. Well, that works well and fine if you have a car. <laughs> what if you don't have a car? So um, Right, and, and I think that's something that we talked about a lot. Um, my director, Don Monique Williams, uh, has a daughter that was, attending college until the semester, of course, was interrupted. And so, um, and we would share, we would talk about that, you know, her daughter's experience and then our own college experiences. And I, I work with, I'm working with this wonderful dramaturg, Lee Ronan Davis. And mm-hmm. um, so we've, like the group of us have just had, really interesting conversations about how class plays out on campus, how love plays out on campus, the mm-hmm. the relationships between black women and white women on campus and how and how that plays out. Um and the the ways in which black women are you know sometimes we have a situation where we don't necessarily feel comfortable in certain spaces and we don't feel com- we don't necessarily feel comfortable when we are i don't know like in in a predominantly white space and so what does that mean um to seek comfort with each other and that was a big part of the conversations that we were having as we were rehearsing Mhm. Right. Yeah. And in this particular setting, you have um, it's one of those places where, and during the winter, you don't see sun a lot. Uh, it sounds like Pacific Northwest in Seattle. I hear that you know when it's rainy season, it rains a whole lot, like a right, lot. Right. Right. <laughs> and then if you have that, you know, seasonal, um, I don't know the the rest of the name for it, but if you're affected by the absence of sun, if it affects your mood, then this could be one of those places. And um, and and then, you know, you have, you know, you bring in the idea of, of talking to a therapist, which I think is really great, you know, that is, it's normalized. Um, but what's not normalized, what is normalized to the point that there aren't that many therapists of African descent. And right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I think and one thing one thing that um, Bay Area Playwrights Festival did did uh, Jessica mm-hmm. was so great in in linking each of us up with content experts that oh. we could discuss our plays. So my content expert was Dr. Nikki Terry, who is mm-hmm. a college therapist um, at the University of Oregon. She's black. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's one of she's one of very few. Um, on campus, and she was just telling us about what the concerns that the black students on the campus that she works at, what they what their concerns are, what are what are the stresses that they have, and relating it back to the play. And it was so interesting how little has changed between the concerns that I highlight in this play that takes place in 1996 and what her students are thinking about in 2020 and that was that was really fascinating mm-hmm. oh wow that's really great yeah wow and then i was thinking about um uh your character um uh is it Taryn? yes yeah how her mother like she has a different situation. I mean, she even knows how to cook. I think she makes a macaroni and cheese or something that um, yes, she does. Sierra just <laughs> loves. And, and she doesn't live in the dorm. She's a sophomore, and she lives um, uh, with more students, but she lives off campus. But I think it's still kind of arranged through the campus, but it's less expensive. And and it seems as if her mother would, is what one would call an essential worker um, because uh something comes up in the play and um and uh I don't know if it's Sierra and Kat but they realize that um that her mother um you know is not a housewife and and that you know she she has to work for a living and so anyway um right, so right. To talk a, yeah talk a little bit about yeah about the class and the social economic right i think i think something of, that came up Oh, sure. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I'm kidding. Oh, so one thing that we talked about in rehearsal really is that, you know, sometimes on a college campus there are students. Taryn, for example, is a student that is very connected to the dining hall staff and knows everyone's names and, you know, her own mother works at a hotel and so understands what it means to have a service job and appreciates what the people on the campus are doing for her and other students. And Sierra is coming from a situation where it's like, oh, well, that's your job. Okay. You know, and doesn't necessarily have that kind of connection. And so that is a point of that is a point of tension between them because Taryn just has this empath- this extra empathy um, because of her mom and because she she just doesn't necessarily see herself as all that different from the support staff on campus um, and. I think that's really interesting because sometimes black students do have different differing relationships when it comes to um 
the class divides that are on campus because those class divides are happening even within that workforce, what's happening between staff, faculty, administration. There are all these dividing lines even on that level. Um, so I think where Taryn aligns herself is with more with the support staff because it's like, oh, we, you know, oh, you're like people I know back home. Cool. Like, it's good to see you. Um, and so I thought that was really, I remember that being a something that we thought about a lot even when I was in college. Um, mm. And so I thought it was something to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do any of these characters um, sort of reflect your experience um, uh, in college? I would say a little bit. I mean, a little bit of, I, I feel like a little bit of all of them. I, I tend to composite my characters, and I don't tend to really base characters off of me, but I could mm-hmm. think of several people <laughs> that a lot of the characters um represent but i i remember i i remember thinking a lot about just the experience of going from living at home to living in a room with a stranger mm-hmm. and so i was thinking a lot about that i mean that was my experience i did live in holland hall <laughs> when i was at the university of pittsburgh and so mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about what is, like, wow, it's so interesting that I went from home and then I was living in this room with this person that I did not know that was from a small town in Pennsylvania, you know, a white woman from a small town in Pennsylvania, and, you know, we could hear each all of each other's phone calls. <laughs> there just was no privacy at all, and how completely strange that seems when I look back on it. (laughs) Um, Mm. And so I I was thinking about that experience a lot as I was writing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And and I was wondering, because this is 1996 and we're in 2020, and that experience is never going to be replicated again because of what we're living with right now. And and I was just wondering, um, you know, because you're a mother, I was wondering sort of, um, I don't know, it's sort of like thinking about, about your children and and their college experience or their university experience and, and the whole idea of, of, of this society, you know, um, this world the dorm creates and... And and sort of what young people have to look forward to, you know, now as as institutions are rethinking and trying to think of how we're going to do this because it's such a part of like the first year experience, the dorm thing, right? Um, right, right. Well, my my, yeah. my children are my children are eleven and eight, so they do uh-huh. have some time. I think that this is. I think, but I also think I. I have no idea what the repercussions of this moment are going to be for my children mm-hmm. because we're still in it. And so I have no idea. Right now, their take is they never want to leave home ever. Like they don't want to go away to college. No, no, no. 
And I think it's interesting how many college students who were on campus in March are came home and then said to their parents, because I know quite a few of them, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to live on campus. Even when they open the campus, I want to go local. So I don't, I feel like, I, I can't tell if our kids will grow up to want to go away or if they'll grow up to really want to stay local. I'm wondering what this moment, how this moment will inform their goals later. Um, But I think it also depends on how much longer we're in this moment. Um, Right, I was just in a meeting yesterday with my kids' school, and they're talking about, oh, well, you know, they'll come to school twice a week, they'll wear masks all day, we're going to test, we're going to try to test the kids every day, Uh, they're not going to all be here together, of course, we'll try to be outside, all these plans, and so it's really hard to know um, how this is going to affect the future. What I hope is that institutions will really embrace equity and make sure that no matter where a student comes from or how much money their family has, they have access to the same education and comfortably that they're not struggling, (laughs) you know, they're not on campus struggling because struggling while you're trying to study um, is really not conducive to success, you know, academically. And so whatever that means, whatever walls will be torn down, um, whatever, you know, reparations or whatever whatever is on the table for discussion, I think is really key um, in trying to understand what the future of academia will look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know you have to go, um, like, now, but I was wondering, do you have time for, like, two more questions? Uh, Sure, sure. Okay. I just wanted to ask you if you could, um, you know, just tell us about how – you know, the first reading was, and did you change anything? Because today your play is being staged again at 5 o'clock. People can, can listen and watch. And um, and then I wanted you to talk a little bit about the soundtrack and do we hear the music um, during the reading? Like, is there... Oh, sure. You know, is, mm-hmm. So I think, so what my 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 process was is even before... The festival officially started. I was meeting with um, my director and my dramaturg, Don Monique Williams and Lee Vernon Davis, and we were meeting and chatting. And I started to work on the script. And I was trying to give my buy myself time because I do have two children in the house. Um, and I was just like waking up at six in the morning before they woke up to work on the script. And so once we went into rehearsals, I had some changes. And then when the actors were rehearsing and, you know, their insights were so helpful. Our discussions were so helpful. I was working on the script. And then we had the first reading on Sunday, which went really well. And, of course, as I was watching it, I was like, why is that there? Oh, I don't need that line. So I was able to tighten the script. So this week was really about tightening the script. And we 
do have music. Um, there is a mix of sort of R&B girl group music that you can hear in the reading tonight and also the Riot Girl movement music, which is sort of a movement from the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. So Sierra... Sierra's roommate Kat is really into Riot Girl music, and Sierra finds that she kind of likes it too because there's kind of a a rage and a anger <laughs> that that Sierra <laughs> enjoys tapping into, but also um, Sierra and Taryn really enjoy like you know chilling and studying and listening to like Crazy Sexy Cool, like TLC's album from that time, and. So, yeah, and, yeah, you can hear a lot of those tunes in the reading. Nice, nice. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Jessica, um, any, um, before uh, uh, Deneen leaves us, any any comment, uh, question? Um, You want to amplify anything? Yeah, I mean, just based off that last question, you know, I think – what is also so fun about this process is this is the first time Denise ever heard her scripts with actors. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so that's like, it's such a powerful moment when your play gets to come to life with actors and you have a team in the room and you now get to like refine and think about, okay, now that people are embodying these characters. <laughs> right. And that's but, so but, helpful. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, I, I just, I just love that moment of, you know, I feel like working on a new play is like, you know, giving birth in some way and giving life to something. And that at some point, you know, it, it becomes something you don't have as much control over as everybody comes into the room and it's like kind of, but in a good way, you know, um, and it's been so beautiful to see it come to life. And I can't wait to see the changes. That's also what's exciting for me is all the plays go back into rehearsal and then they come back out the second week and every playwright will have done some kind of work based off of what they've learned in the first week. Definitely. I can't wait to see it either. I'm really ready to like just sit back and watch and enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And, and, and even in this, um, uh, virtual format, do we get a chance to, to listen to the playwright, um, you know, uh, talk or not comment, and the audience, does the audience get a chance to give impressions uh, based on some questions that usually um, uh, the artistic director might tell us, you know, sort of giving us the parameters, or maybe your director might lead the discussion. Does that happen? Is that happening now uh, in this this particular um, reconfiguration of the festival? So currently currently in this um, configuration, so we did have a playwright panel on Wednesday, which is still up on the Playwrights Foundation website, which is where, you that know. That was nice. Yeah, I watched yeah, that. Oh, that yeah, oh, nice. yeah, I saw you joined. Um, but where people can kind of hear more from the playwrights themselves, you know, um, because right after reading, it's actually super hard for a playwright. You know, you just think about this vulnerable process of like putting something in <laughs> front of everybody and then you have to get up and perform. And so, you know, a player, uh, it's something that I'm very much like, okay, let's, whatever happens after the play, how does it serve the playwright's process? And so we've asked each of the playwrights, you know, um, how do you want to receive feedback during 
the show, you know, because we're in this world that we can't hear people clap or breathe or cry or laugh. Um, and so do we want to use the chat function? Do we not want to use the chat function? Um, you know, are there questions we want to ask people afterwards? You know, and a lot of folks, we've been putting together questions in Google Forms and having people, you know, respond that way or respond in the chat. Um, and Deneen is actually, you know, she'll, she'll get an experience with both. The first week she was like, I just want people to listen to the play. So like not chatting or responding, but they can respond in the chat afterwards. And then this week we're going to encourage people, and we just encourage people just like you're in a theater in the chat, you know, if you're going to laugh, you know, if you, you know, are gasping or having some reaction, you know, put it in the chat um, so that we can be in community with one another. And it's um, great I'm to curious. do that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, I think one of the great things about this process, too, is other, the other playwrights in the festival were saying how they really enjoyed the experience of watching it with the chat. And so I thought, okay, fine, let's try it. <laughs> but I think these, these conversations that we, that we have as artists and best practices and sharing things with each other and, oh, did you try this and did you try that and did you like that? And I think those conversations have really helped um, through the process and also helps take risks with things that maybe we're not so sure about. So, Right, because it's a whole new world, right? We're all Absolutely. experimenting yeah. with what this is and, and how do we create that sense of community and, you know, developing a play in this new new world. Definitely. And thank you so much again for for inviting me on, Wanda. And, oh, you're quite um, welcome. and Jessica, I will see you later. But thank yeah, you so much. You <laughs> oh, yeah, you will Thanks see me too. later, too, if, if you look at those things. I will be um, there at 5 to, um, I'll be, I'll be you know, to, to see the play. <laughs> You'll be peeking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks so much. Oh, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on being a part of the festival this year. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> um, so um uh, people will actually be able to hear um uh Deneen in conversation, I believe, with um uh a Tyler English uh Beckwith on Sunday for the panel on Love and Desire at 3. Is that correct? Um, so that panel, the playwrights won't be on that panel. but um, Oh, they're have, not there. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, they won't be on it necessarily. But what, what that, the Love and Desire panel and what we also have are conversations that are in conversation with the plays. So mm-hmm. with Mingus, um, Tyler, Tyler's play and Deneen's play, Bathed in Homeland, there's a lot of, themes and, you know, black women as central characters. And so we're having conversations with our content experts, with, you know, that Deneen was talking about and, you know, some other guests um, that uh, talking about love and desire and, and what that looks like. All the guests are um, black women. Um, and, you know, what does that look like in love, career, you know, and all these aspects of life, family, um, and, and having conversations that um, go into people's, you know, lives themselves, the, 
the content expert that Denise was talking about, Dr. Nikki Cherry, um, she'll be on the panel and, you know, can talk about her experience and things in the real world that relate to Denise's play. Um, so, yeah, their they're conversations kind of around, around the play and the themes. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah. And then while we're speaking about panels, there's another one tomorrow, Decolonizing New Play Development, and that's at 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. And uh, and both of these um, these panels are live in the uh, Playwrights Foundation Facebook and through the website as well. Um, yeah, so tell us about the Decolonizing New Play Development um, tomorrow morning. Yeah, so that that conversation, you know, um, you know, there's there's a revolution happening right now, you know, in in our country, but also in theater, you know, as some tough conversations have been being had, and you know, the prevalence of white supremacy and the dominant culture that is influencing how and what plays are brought to stages, and who's watching those plays and the processes and you know, I was really interested in, um, you know, we're, we're talking about system changes within and especially in the Bay Area um, amongst artistic leaders. And I just really wanted us to have a conversation and examining what, what does it mean to decolonize the new play development. There's a lot of power structures that exist between, you know, playwrights and, you know, BIPOC playwrights with predominantly white institutions of how and what it looks like for your work to be done and sometimes the compromises that you have to make and also what are the stories that are accepted into the like American theater and so we have a panel of you know dynamic women with indigenous voices and black voices and you know other BIPOC um, artists and talking about what decolonization means and what does it mean specifically in the new play development and who is doing this work already and how how we can learn from it. You know, for me, I don't I don't know all the answers. And I'm wanting, you know, also listening and asking questions. And this weekend is at the festival is our theater professionals weekend where we give free tickets to theater professionals across the country and now like across the world. And usually in person we have like fifty or so people that show up and this year there's like over three hundred that have registered <laughs> from all over, which is super, super exciting. But this is, you know, also a conversation really aimed at um, theater professionals and, you know, challenging us to rethink the way that we, that we do new play development and serve our artists. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I know some of the names of the, uh, the guests on the panel on Saturday, uh, Decolonizing New Play Development, uh, Claudia Alec, Annalisa mm-hmm. Diaz, uh, Mina Marita, uh, I don't know Tara Moses, Maddie Sayet, or Nan Barnett. Um, are they are they here in the Bay Area? Or are they national? Um, they're national. So Tara and Maddie, um, you know, are uh, are directors and running companies across, but also just um, you know, indigenous voices that are making waves in the new play development world. And Nan Barnett, mm-hmm. um, we have a partnership on this panel with National New Play Network, which is a network of um, 
you know, theaters across the nation who are interested in new play development. And so we wanted to expand this conversation on the national level um, and making sure that, uh, and so Nan's the executive uh, director of that organization. And um, yeah, so that it's a national conversation that, uh, and the beginning of a conversation with the panel tomorrow and also in our thought process throughout the weekend with the festival. So it's a local and yeah. national conversation. Yeah, and um, I know um, uh, Mina is artistic director for Crowded Fire um, Theater, and um, and then Annalisa and uh, Claudia is Claudia, which um, is she with uh, Shogun or I'm not sure. Um, I just know her name. She, <laughs> she's an yeah. Claudia is an independent artist, but she also, you know, has her own organization, Calling Up Justice, and works as oh, um, a consultant and okay. in um, right. fighting for justice in in multiple mm-hmm. areas, and you know, mm-hmm. facilitating these conversations. Um, so she, uh, you know, um, she's kind of a powerhouse in. Yes, she is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I, I know I've seen her um, uh, participating and being a part of the uh, the Playwright Festival a number of years. I think she was a part of it last year as well. Um, last year was a specific focus on on um, uh, Black theater makers, and it was a special. I think. Um, sort of convening. Uh, it was really beautiful. It was on the Sunday, the last Sunday afternoon. And it was just, it was almost like going to church. It was just, it was like oh, yeah. healing and it was spiritual and it was, people were telling stories and we, we laid on hands. It was just like awesome. You know, oh, so you know, Amy, mm-hmm. Amy Muller, you know, your, your predecessor. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if she was a founder or not of Bay Area Playwright Festival, but you know, seemed like I think she went back to the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> and, she wasn't the founder, but she definitely was there for 19 years, so she was there for a while. Right, right, yeah, and you know, and it seems you know, with the passing of the baton, you know, you are continuing even in this configuration uh, of of the festival. You know, this this opportunity to be able to like go deep and and sort of you know be really vulnerable. You know, as an institution, you know, as uh, an art form, you know, as as a way for people to like get real and be real, yeah. About you know the strengths and the weaknesses of you know art, yeah. Particularly, you Absolutely. know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I is mean, good. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting too, you know, because um, I mean, all of our playwrights and plays that we have this year are so dynamic and just like. Mm-hmm incredibly, you know, it's always amazing to me, and this happens with art, you know, it's like things are written, a, you know, a couple years before, and then are still so incredibly resonant and present in current moments and current events, um, which I think is definitely happening with all of these plays of how they're speaking about, you know, where we are right now, even in mm-hmm. this, like, world of isolation and revolution at the same time. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. That is that is happening, um, and I also, you know, I I will I I like to say this because 
it, it shows, I think, the quality of the plays. But we do have a lineup of all women and all women of color. But we didn't set out to say we want a lineup of all women of color. You know, it was these are the plays and the stories that rose to the top and ones that were in conversation with each other and that were ready for this time and moment, you know, and afterwards and you're like, this is amazing, you know, (laughs) especially in, I mean, we are focused on how do we even out the parody in and, and bring equity into the field. And we are always talking about that too, you know, but also looking like what are the stories we haven't heard yet and we, we need to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, every single one of these plays are are just talking about things in just so many so many different ways and so many levels. And you know, even just babes. And you know, we talk about Mingus with um, uh, Tyler English Beckwith's piece. And Mingus is about B. Coleman, you know, um, a black student who's a first generation college student and has all these revolutionary ideas. Um, about about love and uh, what revolution means and comes to her mentor for help on um, in need of a recommendation letter for a scholarship and they begin having a relationship and she's having a hard time finding her voice and, you know, puts too much trust in her black studies professor who um, and, and by the end she learns you know, her voice was there all along and she needed to trust it um, and and how she found her strength through that. And, that, you know, there's just been a lot of conversation of between those two plays of how, um, you know, they kind of speak to each other um, in, with, with, with students in predominantly white institutions <laughs> and in their in their lives and finding their voices. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And then um in uh Jordan Ramirez uh Puckett's uh To Saints and Stars where you're the director. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell us about how how you you know, you were the artistic, you know, director of the festival of the of the, the foundation and the festival, you know, like you're you know, you're like involved in making it happen and then you're also a director so yeah um how do you multitask like that (laughs) um you know i think it's figuring out you know how to have boundaries to do it i mean when i first talked with jordan i was like hey i want to make sure (laughs) i can serve you and the process and you feel supported so we put like regular meetings on the calendar that i was like we're going to meet we're going to talk about the play um, you know, cause for me, I am an artist also and, and coming into this position, um, I, I, I was very, you know, that I myself needed to make sure that I still was able to be an artist in the process. And also I learned more about the organization by being an artist and going through the process. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it's just, it's, it's been, it's, not to say it's easy, but it has just been so beautiful to be able to also be an artist and in the room. One of my favorite places is being in the rehearsal room and mm-hmm. asking questions and working with the artists and, you know, digging into the life of a play. And, you know, Jordan's piece has been <clears throat> so 
you know, so just a wonderful time and experience um, working with her. And we've been able to develop community in this online world, which was a question that I had. You know, theater is such an intimate, like, vulnerable space. And how do you create that in this online world? Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, everybody's just so grateful to be also working right now, and, like, we're grateful to have a place to come together, even if it is in a virtual room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jordan's piece focuses on, you know, Sophia and Zoe, best friends, um, and Sophia's a NASA astronaut, and Zoe is the wife of a Greek Orthodox priest, and they've been friends since they were little, and not a day has passed where they haven't, like, talked or spoken to each other. Um And then as what happens, you know, with friendships often when you get older and life kind of starts taking another direction um, and Zoe becomes pregnant, you know, Sophia is chosen for the first crewed mission to Mars and you get these conversations um, about what is important in life, how in close relationships um, do you navigate um, what that means and everybody has a deep purpose and how you're acting out that deep purpose and their relationship, you know, we never see them in person. It's all over, you know, this is set in the near distant future. So it's all over holograms or video calls, as we would say. So Mm -hmm. there's also been this like deep resonance to the idea of like not being able to be with and touch those that you love, which is so (laughs) resonant in this time and moment where many of us or just connecting with people over video chat. Um, and it's, it's a deep exploration of the intersection of, of science and faith um, and how those two are, can be in opposition with each other, but also are in conversation with each other. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> it's, it's really interesting, you know, sort of the way that, you know, this work, these these plays are are in conversation with one another. Um, you know, sort of think about um, <clears throat> uh, Jordan's play to Saints and Stars, and and she is, I think, if I'm re- reading it correctly, the only playwright that's located within the San Francisco Bay Area. <clears throat> yeah, she's currently other- located. Yeah, she's from the Bay Area. Noel Zemius, the playwright of Derecho, is also from the Bay Area. She's um, one of our resident playwrights at Playwrights Foundation, but she is in getting her grad school degree in New York. So she is in New York right now, but um, Noelle and Jordan are kind of our Bay Area playwrights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So continue telling us about, you know, the other other playwrights. And I'm just so amazed, you know, when you tell us you went from 735 to 100 and something, to 30 to these, you know, five plays. I'm like, wow, that is amazing. What an amazing sifting process. I mean, you know how you, you know, you're like panning for gold, right? Yeah. It takes a team, you know, uh, and you have people that advocate for certain plays, you know, for Deneen's mm-hmm. play, um, Janine's dramaturg, Lee Rondon Davis, was on our uh, literary committee and, you know, was a huge advocate for Janine's play. And that makes such a difference as we, like, listen to people and their voices of, you know, what is resonating with our, our 
you know, the people that are reading these plays and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's not just me going in and like picking them out, but we we (laughs) have um, other theater artists and my literary team and literary manager, Heather Holinsky, who guides the whole process, but it is, there's a, there's a huge metrics and, you know, it's very quantitative and qualitative (laughs) in trying Mm. to narrow all these down. Um, but, you know, I was just talking a little bit about Noelle's piece. So I'll talk a little bit about Derecho. Um, but that is a piece, you know, we've actually had the opportunity of having a couple of readings of previously um, mm-hmm. with her being a resident playwright. Um, wow. And, you know, so it was, it was so wonderful to see it also rise to the top and be able to uh, give this um, longer opportunity. Um, and it's focusing on... Uh, a Eugenia Silva who is running for office in the Virginia General Assembly and she uh, on this night she's fighting for an endorsement from an old friend for her campaign and there's a storm there's a derecho that happens and they all kind of get stuck in the same house and um, you know also kind of storms between the different dynamics and things from the past come up and but you know we're also learning uh, you know it focuses on she's a latina candidate running and um there's a lot of conversations that happen when they are in the house just in the idea that you know, Latinx communities aren't a monolith and you can't even just politically say, oh, well, you must be progressive or, you know, various things. And so there's these deep political conversations from um, uh, different um, characters and um, also another character whose, you know, uh, father is, father Run, runs a company who gives a lot to political endorsements um, and he's a white character. And so they also have these conversations about, you know, what does it mean to kind of take uh, larger or big money in a campaign and should you or shouldn't you or what does that mean to the community? Um, and also about these two sisters. You know, it's really also a, a love letter kind of about these two sisters and how they're connecting to their identity as well as, you know, to the predominant culture they've grown up in and, and kind of where those tensions are and how they can find each other and their, uh, their identities in the, midst of, in, in the midst of their world. So it's a really, all of these pieces are just very thought-provoking um, and mm-hmm. resonant. Um, yeah. And, so, and uh, Stephanie's um, final boarding call, and and then yeah. and we can close with Mingus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, final boarding call. Um, you know, this tells Stephanie's telling the human stories of the current Hong Kong protests, um, and so it focuses on the protests in 2019. You know, kind of in the peak in the fall. Um, and we just get these personal um, insight. You know, you just get a window into what's happening and, and what revolution means in Hong Kong. You know, Stephanie talks about um, she, she has family in Hong Kong and Taiwan and, you know, from high school, grew up in the U.S. Um, 
And when the protests were happening, you know, someone asked her, like, oh, are you going to write a play about it? And she's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to capitalize on that story. And, um, you know, this person said, well, if you don't, some, you know, white man in Europe is going to, and then they won't be telling, you know, your people's story. And so she felt this responsibility. And it's, you know, in this process, um, it's, it, you know, um, that political climate is happening right now. I mean, and there is a law that was just passed a few weeks ago um, that tightened security in Hong Kong. Um, and so we have also been, you know, looking at security in our process. And, you know, we have actors from all over for that. Her play has English, Mandarin, and Cantonese. Um, and so with being online, we've been able to look casting all across the world. Um, which has been really exciting because she hasn't, in her reading process, hasn't been able to find people that can speak the language, specifically Cantonese, you know, mm-hmm. that um, would be able to do justice to what she's been writing. So she's been able in this process to put more, uh, authentically put more Mandarin in the process because of the cast that she has, um, you know. And so it's been, yeah, it's been a very, like, current timely piece um, to be working on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and the final play that um, as a part of this, this year's festival, you mentioned it a little bit, but maybe you could uh, tell the audience a little bit more about what it's about. Um, Tyler's play? Yeah, Mingus, Tyler and Gershbeckwith. You know, um, Mingus, you know, the title is taken from the jazz, you know, artist Charles Mingus. Um, and these mentor, Harrison Jones, who's also a former member of the Black Panther Party and a prolific author who's from Oakland, actually. Um, but he has a love for Mingus. And so a lot of their conversations also kind of... Um, revolve around music and around jazz and, you know, playing within the notes and like sometimes the unpredictability of it. And, um, there, they have conversations about theory and jazz and family, um, and that, you know, kind of unlock something inside each of them. Um, and it kind of gets into an, a tangled web of, of blurred lines that you don't know exactly where this relationship is going um, or who's in control at what moment. Um, and then something happens in the end and B has to, you know, stand up and finally use her voice um, and realize that she, her voice was there the entire, the entire way, you know, and I think sometimes that happens when we, you know, uh, when we as women feel like we need someone else to either help or affirm what our, what we're thinking about or what we're, you know, give credence in some way when, when really it's there all along and we don't need, you know, a man to come around and say, all right, let's give my stamp of approval in some way. Um, Mhm. So it kind of Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so I, it's it's just been so exciting to have all these women um 
working on the same festival and in the same room and they it, it's just been such such a gift to be able to support them in whatever way we can. Mhm. Right, right. So how do people get tickets? I know there's a sliding scale and uh, you already mentioned that theater professionals are um able to attend um you know gratis um this week as a part of the festival it's always so inclusive and make make the festival, you know, really uh, accessible and affordable, you know, for everyone and, and really honor those that are doing the work as well. So tell people yeah. how they can get tickets. <laughs> people can get tickets by going on our website at playwrightsfoundation.org and the sliding scale starts at $5 just to make it really accessible. Usually in person, the tickets are at $20. Um, but we, especially in this world that we're in, we just want as many people you know, as can to see these stories. Um, and so, yeah, there's, uh, you can buy a ticket for one play or you can buy you know, tickets for all five or three. So it's, you know, very flexible, and we are exploring. Um, it is through a streaming service called vMix into Vimeo, so you'll actually be watching them on Vimeo. We're exploring outside of the Zoom world, um, yeah. which brings a little more theatricality. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah. Do you want to do any shout-outs to any of your technical team members or <laughs> uh, maybe uh, do a commercial about um, life after the uh, festival? Um, I know that this is a big part of what Bay Area Playwrights um, Foundation does, but it's not the only thing you do. And uh, so people will probably want to, you know, um, join, um, you know, the the friends or whatever, so that they could, you know, get notifications about, you know, the rough reading series. Um, yeah. Uh, other other types yeah. of things that you all do. Maybe you could maybe do a commercial and a shout out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll definitely shout out, you know, my festival producer Liana Keys, who um, has been amazing at navigating this new world, and we're all teaching ourselves a new medium, and she has plunged in and, you know, taught herself new programs and how to put all of this online in an extremely, you know, professional-looking uh, way, which is something all of the theater folks have been, like, struggling with. How do we how do we put this online and still keep our, like, you know, theatricality? Um, and so I couldn't do this festival without her. Um, so I definitely shout her out. But, I mean, you know, I, I really do hope that folks, you know, stay in contact with us. You know, a lot of it is seeing readings, and I'll be honest, that we're still working out what the what it looks like next after this in this world that we're in for our rep readings, um, because mm-hmm. that is a contract with Stanford that we do, and, you know, they're not meeting in person. So, um, but yeah. we also, you know, have our program with the resident playwrights and uh you know, keeping in contact with and supporting the work that they are doing. And a lot of our artists are making work on their own that we're lifting up right now in this time as Mm -hmm. institutions, you know, aren't producing in the same way, which has been really exciting. Um, And we've been uplifting that as as much as possible. Um, But, yeah, the festival is something that is really the highlight of what we do that audience um, can come and see. 
And so I really hope people can join us. And, you know, then we'll be on our, our list to see what other stories and, and who is doing what in, in our community and in the nation. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I want to congratulate you on, you know, sort of, you know, coming in, you know, to to your position, um, you know, this wonderful organization, you know, at a time that's really challenging, um, but also, I guess, really um, sort of um, encourages, you know, all of those that are involved to be really creative. Um, and And this is... I don't know, I'm just this is just so wonderful because I just love this festival and I'm so happy that it's it's happening cuz you know so many yeah. so many seasons were canceled, so many yeah. I mean like things we look forward to it's like, "Oh no, next year what?" Um but not, you know, Bay Area Playwrights Festival, not Bay Area Playwrights Foundation like, "No, it's going to happen." And you all have made it happen. So congratulations. Some of us like oh, thank you. this is like so much of our years. Like, well, I can't imagine, you know, not yeah, uh, you know, yeah. a summer going by is like, oh my God, no festival, really? <laughs> yeah, no. Thank you so much for your kind words and support. You know, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And I mean, we thought the same thing. You know, we're like, well, this is a time for our field to innovate, and there's so many opportunities of being able to go online. You know. Um, mm-hmm. that I've just been trying to focus on that instead of thinking about what, has, you know, what are the opportunities and what are the values we still want to keep in place and how do we do this in this new medium? It won't look the same, but we can still gather people together um, and right. hear these stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, that's so important. So thank you, know. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to other conversations and I'm really looking forward to 5 o'clock this afternoon to see the play um <laughs> babes and and holland and um wow and then tomorrow more plays and the panel and then sunday more plays and the panel <laughs> and what's really great yeah. about about the uh the panels is that they're there afterwards you can watch it again because <laughs> they're a part of yeah. your Facebook live you know um uh, yeah, know, and they're on our website program. too. So they're yeah. yeah, they're in multiple places. That is this you know, and exciting that we can gather you know panelists and people guests from all over the country, right? You know, which mm-hmm. is another opportunity in this time. Um, mm-hmm. So I keep I keep just trying to focus on that in this time when we've lost so much of like what can we do still, mm-hmm. and and perhaps do in a way that we wouldn't be able to if we were just in person. Um, oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah one, yeah, one plus about, you know, all of this, you know, sort of looking at technology and how it can be, how it can serve community is that yeah. it gives a lot more people access in a way that we've never c- contemplated. So we can't go back to, you know, who's not in the room, everyone can be in the room, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or almost everybody can be in the room. Almost we everyone. We have to think, creative thing, think creatively about it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's yes. the same thing we were talking about earlier, the equity of, like, students of who has Internet and who has, right. you know, access comes into mm-hmm. play in a large way, you know, right now, of who has a computer mm-hmm. and Internet yeah. to be able to watch. So, like, access opens and also is limited at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think, I definitely think it's, 
it's opened up in a, a much larger way than we've ever been able to, you know, serve or, or get people in the room for, especially because one of our goals is to get people, you know, in in the theater and at um, at organizations around the country to know these these works. You know, these are emerging writers, so they haven't had big productions, but they're ready for that. So mm-hmm. um, it's excited to to get their work out, and a lot more people will be able to see it this year than has before. Right. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Well. Thanks so much again. I'm going to let you go because I know you probably have a lot of work left to prepare for this evening. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your work, and thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Look forward to more. Yeah, thank you, Wanda. This has just been so lovely, and thank you for your support of the festival and of Playwrights Foundation. Um, Really appreciate, um, yeah, I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. You take care and have a good rest of the morning. You too. All right. Peace and blessings. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So we are going to close the show with a pre-recorded interview from the archives. Uh, We had a great conversation with Adia Tamara Whitaker, whose work, Bluesico, uh, was at ODC. Hmm. Last year in October, it was so wonderful. Oh, my goodness. This was like her master's. Was it her master's thesis? Yeah, I don't think it was her Ph.D. dissertation. But um, as only idea could do it, right? So there's music. There's there's storytelling through dance. Um, uh, you know, there is a soundtrack. You know, she is, you know, there is a narrative. It was so, so wonderful, the story that she tells about our people and their travel. And there is so much happening, um, oh, this weekend, oh, my goodness. Um, Like right now there is a, um, uh, let me tell you what it is. You can watch it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is a, um, (laughs) there is a, um, Congressional Black Caucus Town Hall on Black Mental Health that's happening right now. Uh, Pacific time, you can tune in. And um, and then, uh, what else is happening? Gosh, it's too much. You need to just go visit um, WandasPicks.com so that um, the things that I know about I can share with you because um, it would take a little bit too much time and I want to get to this uh, Black Mental Health in 2020 uh, webinar. So thank you so much for for uh, joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. And enjoy Adia Tamara Whitaker as she talks about Bluesico. Well, we were supposed to be starting with uh, <laughs> um, with a uh, giant trinity, but oh well, we'll just get started and try it again a little later. We are so excited to have Adia T- uh, Tamar Whitaker in the studio to talk about um, the uh, Ashe Dance Theater Collective's West Coast premiere of Have No. That's K. 
in parentheses, N-O apostrophe, and then W, Have No Fear of Blues Co. And that's going to be October 17th through 19th. And Adia um, uh, Tamara Whitaker is artistic director of this 19-year-old Brooklyn-based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective. And it's performed contemporary dance, vernacular movement, Afro-Haitian and Haitian dance in the United States and abroad for 17 years. Like, oh, my goodness, where did the time fly, right, Adia? Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow, like amazing. You're getting ready to have your 20th anniversary next year. Like, wow. Awesome, I know. Awesome. It's been a long time. It's been a long mm-hmm. time of doing this work. Yeah, and you've been traveling all throughout the world, you know, in the uh, African diaspora and elsewhere, Haiti or Haiti. Cuba, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ghana, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And when you're there, um, uh, you both study and teach dance. And you received your MFA in dance from Hollins University, which is in Virginia. Yeah, I just completed that. I just completed Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lot of hard work, but I made it through. Yeah. Not really a <laughs> academic type of uh, person, but, you know, mm-hmm. I just had to get my freedom papers, some more freedom papers. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And Virginia, you know, um, sort of honoring the 400th anniversary of of the Commonwealth, uh, you know, entrance into, um, you know, this particular hemisphere as uh, a, a place that had, African people, you know, as possessions. Um, so that was in August. And so, where's Hollands in relationship to um, oh, uh, Hampton? I, you know, I don't know where it is in relationship to Hampton, but H- Hollands was an old plantation. So it's what? just a deep, yeah, it was an old plantation. And so the people, the descendants of the Africans that lived on that plantation and and worked as enslaved Africans still live on the land and are the groundskeepers and they work in the cafeteria and you can visit this like the graveyard of a family so I think it's the Locke family they have their mm-hmm. graves in one place and then they have the graves of their enslaved Africans there as well so Hollands was deep I could I didn't get over to the graveyards because it was just such such a journey for me, but um, mm-hmm. just being on the land where Africans were enslaved and everybody knows it, and then I guess it turned into a spa at some point, and then after mm-hmm. that, since Holland is a un- women's university, there were mm-hmm. the young women that attended there were allowed to have a young black woman as their kind of helper to help mm-hmm. them, I don't know, carry their books or just, I don't know, just basically work for them. So that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting kind of strangeness that was also going on there. And it also is on indigenous land. We have to also mm-hmm. remember that before all mm-hmm. of our ancestors got there, it was indigenous land. So there's a lot of strong, like, psychic and spiritual energy just on the campus of Hollands because it's really old. And in the middle of the campus, there's a big, you know, like a big circle with a cross in the middle. So for me, it's mm-hmm. a Dikenga. It's a big Congolese, you know, cosmogram in the middle yeah. of the quad with four houses on each side. So there's lots of energy there. And also when I was, I uh, one of the parts of, big parts of 
Have No Fear, um, I refer to Margaret Wise Brown's book, Good Night Moon, the children's book. And so yeah. there was this big ballroom on campus that had this big green carpet. And every time I'd go in the room, I'd be like, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And I'd get all excited. But there wasn't a whole lot of parents there. So it didn't really mean as much to my cohort as it did to me. But every time I would go in that room, I would just, like, even under my breath, I would recite this, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And one day I went to the student union, and I saw her book in the student union. And I'm like, oh, my God, this book has been a part of my life since I've had children. I've had to read it for eight years. I've memorized it. And I was like, do you have children's books on campus? And they said, no, we just have her book because she's an alumni. And so mm-hmm. I went back wow. and I looked at some more information to find out if she had been in the room that I would mm-hmm. go into and have this urge to say lines from her book. And it turned out that at the time she went to school there, it was a cafeteria. So she was absolutely in that space. So mm-hmm. that's one of the, the like kind of connective tissues that, that I was like, okay, let me figure out why this dead white woman is talking to me because she's an ancestor as well and I need to figure out what she what her what her connection to my work is because every time I go in that space I I'd, I'd say those lines and then when it was time to pick our the place we would perform for our thesis I was like I don't want to do it in the theater I need to do it in that ballroom because it was like a gazebo ceiling a big shiny chandelier and I don't even know if my ancestors would have been allowed in that space except to be in service of all the very very dead white people on the walls because the whole space was surrounded by pictures of the Locke family, all these white elders and scholars. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure that my family would not have been allowed in that room at all if it were not in service. Um, So I was like, well, because I know that we probably weren't allowed in this room, I'm about to do this right here underneath your shiny (laughs) crystal chandelier on your green carpet in front of all, and it gave such a, a a backdrop to the choreography and the singing and what we were doing. Because you know we got drums up there, we were barefoot, we had on frocks, but it wasn't. It was definitely not what we would have been able to do between the 15th and the 19th, 18th century. You know. Mhm. <laughs> wow, this is so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Place is everything, isn't it? Right. Right, it totally yeah, is, and yeah. I think that, you know, like I was getting a lot of people were like, you know, with with us performing at ODC, it's a mm-hmm. completely, you know, this piece or these, you know, everything that we're going to present was really, I got to a place in performing in the concert stage where I was like, you know, I, it wasn't enough for me anymore, and I'm like, you know, the people that inspire most of the work that a lot of artists do don't get to see it right? Maybe they can't afford to come to the show. Maybe they have so many life things that are keeping them from the theater. So really this piece was designed as a model of like performance art, protest, and action because I was like, you know, it's fine to do it in the theater, but a theater is a very sanctioned space. And I'm interested in the spaces where we don't have permission. Like Rosa Parks didn't ask for permission. She just said no. You know, you don't, you don't ask permission for the revolution to happen or for resistance to happen. And so I was like, you know, I feel like we're in a time where there's so much performing of the progressive and of the revolution and of resistance. But people are not really willing to be uncomfortable 
or to put their lives on the line. And the United States is one of the only places where we can at this time, maybe not in a couple of weeks or in a month, that I have an opportunity to present a work like this and not be murdered. And that, you know, I'm very, I'm very present with the privilege that I have to be able to present this work, whether it's on the street or whether it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to run, keep on running through your, your bio, and then I want us to talk more about about what you call um, this work, an undoing spell to untie all the knots that choke the future from natural disasters and systemic oppression to forced migration. It's a work of both healing and resistance. And um, notice that um, you uh, you came through, you know, that wonderful institution, uh I don't know what it's looking like now in in San Francisco at San Francisco State University, but you were probably there when all those wonderful um, elder women, African women teachers, were there. And I want to pour an ashe to um, to Dr. Uh, Nasisi Caillou, who who made right. her transition. Mm-hmm. Ashe, Nasisi. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, those those were the ones that came and got me, not um, Doctor. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bird. Caillou was my teacher. Dr. Bird is my teacher. Alicia mm-hmm. Pierce is my teacher. Malanga Costa mm-hmm. is my teacher. Carlos nice. Atacuno is my teacher. Pakiso mm-hmm. is my teacher. Um, so many teachers. Miss Blanche Brown is my teacher. <laughs> Michelle mm-hmm. Martin is my teacher. Portia Jefferson is my teacher. All of them. They all. They all brought me into being who I think I am right now. And um, I didn't really know. You know, I didn't know. I was a regular Frisco, San Francisco youth. I didn't know anything about no conscious nothing and no drums. I just went to San Francisco State because I was in Upward Bound, and I got that's the college I got into. So mm-hmm. when I met all these people, they really came and got me. It wasn't, I was like, no, I'm going to, you know, be a journalism major or something. And they were like, no, 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 no. You need to come on over here. And I was like, no, I'm not going to be able to survive as a dancer. I don't want to be uh And I had all these notions about, like, what an artist, you know, like what it is to be an artist and how I would just be struggling and hungry. And even though that happens sometimes, I just, you know, I always have to thank them for pushing me and <laughs> chasing me down and being like, no, 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 you come over here. <laughs> Oh wow, that is so awesome. So so tell us about tell us about the work, um, because there there are a lot of a lot of parts to it. And also I wanna mention that um that you um you were part of uh the the uh what is it, the professional you got a professional division US independent studies program something or another at Ailey School. Oh yeah. Uh, I just I just went that's how I came to New York is I, I got done at mm-hmm. San Francisco State in two thousand and then when I was coming I was didn't know what I was gonna do so I bought a ticket to Cuba because I was like let me just go and see if I'm just gonna travel the world and study dance which I you know I ended up doing it anyway but I I just didn't know what I was gonna do and like at the last minute I think my mom got tickets to see um Ailey at the Zeller Block and Ron mm-hmm. Brown did Grace in that show so as ah. the Ailey company was performing and Ron Brown I did Grace and I had never seen anything like it and so because I saw Grace I decided mm-hmm. I was going to audition for the Ailey school the next day because I wasn't going to I had auditioned the year before and I didn't get in 
And so I was like, mm, I, you know, maybe I'll go see the show. So I went to see the show, and at the last minute I was like, I'm going to audition. I went to Berkeley, I auditioned, and then I got into the professional division independent study program. And then, so that was June, and then I was in New York in September. Oh, wow. And then I started performing <laughs> in December. Oh, my. I was, wow. You know, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick little, this is your destiny, you know, moment. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you get those kind of calls. Like, they're, you know, you don't have to wander around. It's like, this is what we want you to do, the ancestors are yeah. telling us. Right. Yeah, that's nice. You know, sometimes yeah, you have to wander nice. around for a bit. It's good when you get it more direct, right? <laughs> and you listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always been that way, though. So I guess, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. that is a blessing. It is a blessing, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. So so tell us more about um, this wonderful Have No Fear, a Bluesico, and, and your, you know, your dance theater collective and, you know, all the different pieces that are you're pulling together that people won't know, like, wow, this was a real big thing, um, you know, both sides yeah, of I, the country and, you know, all these yeah, different creative minds that are coming together and, you know, the multiple genres, you know, there's dance, there's live music. Um, yeah, yeah, talk to us about it. So um, <clears throat> it began with, um, I start. I choreographed the first section of Have No Fear. So Have No Fear, a bluesical, is composed of three parts. The first part is called A Break for the Five. I choreographed, I started to choreograph A Break for the Five, I'd say in like 2007, for a show called Native Tongue that happened at OBC. The show was presented by Hasita Vlock. And so it was really her show, but she she wanted me to do work in it, or she asked me to do work in it, and I said yes. And originally it was kind of an idea. I knew that just from my personal experiences that um, my friends, a lot of the black folks in Frisco were leaving. They were going back down south um, when I was in San Francisco. And there was a point where I wanted to come back to San Francisco. My friends were like, don't come back here. Something like new and kind of dangerous and strange is happening. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to come home. And they were like, no, no, don't come back because you're going to get caught up in it. And I was like, I don't understand but, you know, I think they were describing, like, the prison industrial complex had gone from something that we were marching in the street about and, like, something that was over there that we were, like, standing up for, and it became, like, very personal and started to affect my family, their families, people we know. Um, and so it became kind of like, stay in San Francisco, you kind of have a couple fates. You'll either uh, get addicted to drugs or the cops will kill you or um you you know turned out by just street life um mm-hmm. and so it was really hard they were just like it's really hard for black folks so a lot of people are going down south so a lot of people are moving out and that's when gentrification really started to pop and so my friends were like just don't come home there's just no there's just not opportunities here for us like that anymore and so when I was when I started to make work, you know, you can't make the same work that is relevant out here in the East Coast to what's happening in the Bay because the Bay is like a whole other thing. So although mm-hmm. I can do the work that ha- is happening out here, there's just way more diversity in the African diaspora. So the the things that we are talking about or talk about in the Bay, it just, there's different issues you need to address when you're there because they're just different places with different populations and people from different places, you know. And so I decided I was going to do a break for the five. 
and I wanted to do um, a rah-rah for the, like, disappearing population of African Americans and just people of color in San Francisco. And so that's mm-hmm. how it started. So I looked at the, the model of a Haitian rah-rah and how it was used or it is used as a form of political protest, but then also looking using some of the, like, voodoo of it, like the sequins to reflect the negative energy away, um, and also kind of creating this inner diasporic Syncretization between not only um, uh, visual like aesthetics from Haitian folklore, but also from uh, folklore that comes from Trinidad and Tobago, and just kind of making this place where the diaspora meets and decides that um, we're all cousins and we're all Africans, and we share a lot of, even though our specific situations are very different, we still are kind of. Um, speaking up against the same forces that seek to oppress us and silence us um, and take our freedoms away. And so that's how Break for the Five happened. And then it grew a little bit bigger when Mark Bamuchi Joseph brought us to the Bay Area to perform in the Living Word Festival, I believe in like 2010, nine, ten. We did it twice. Okay. We did like 2000, maybe 2008 and then 2010. And so it grew into mm-hmm. something bigger. Um, And it just kept growing and growing. And I feel like my pieces, all the pieces that I create are like children. And, you know, people, you know, in the society we live in, people want you to produce all these things really quickly and make pieces, make works, and what are you doing next? And I feel like that's one thing that I've really resisted is I've been like, you know what, I'm going to take time to grow this work to its full realization and potential and really see what it is. And if it takes me 20 years to do that, then I'm going to do that. And so this is the piece where I feel like I really dug my heels in and it was like, no, I'm not just going to keep making things to make things. I'm going to make mm-hmm. things that have that have relevance and are poignant. And so um, that's how a break for the five happened. That's the first section. The other part of a break for the five is that I'm the first female in my family on my mother's side to not participate in the quilting tradition um, in our mm-hmm. family, and my family's from South Carolina, and so that's a big deal. Um, that was a big deal in our family, and so for me, because I didn't grow up in South Carolina, because I just visited and I grew up in the Bay, I always felt like a really strong connection to my family. But that you know, I'm always like the diversified cousin or the kind of outsider. But the 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 how do you say the tradition the tradition of the Baptist Church, although I'm not Christian at all. It is very strong in me because my grandfather, Reverend C.J. Whitaker, was a Baptist minister, um, and he was responsible for forming the first, like, Democratic Party in Greenville, South Carolina. So he was also an activist. So that runs strong in that side of my family. And so I wanted to participate in that quilting tradition with my mama's people because I was like, you know, I feel like they speak to me in dreams and they give me all this kind of – inspiration in the work that I create and so I wanted to be able to speak to them further and so in creating a break for the five this is my like this these are my patches for my familial quilt or my ancestral quilt this is like my telephone to my ancestors on that side of my family mm-hmm. um and then after I came after I I've been working on the break for the five we performed it a bunch of times it kept growing and changing um and then in 2011, after I was in the Bay Area um, for quite some time presenting work at Counterpost, um, I 
became pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> and so my daughter was born on 9-11-11. She was born during Occupy Wall Street. And I remember people calling me like, it's going down. You need to come out here. And I was like, I just had a baby at my house. Like, I've been in labor for four days. I can't come outside. And so my um, that kind of put me in a moment of like, okay, well, I can no longer be a lieutenant in the same way in terms of actions. Like, I can't go outside right now. I might not be able to go outside all the time. So how can I participate in the things that are happening and the things that I still very much believe in and support without being on the front lines. And so that's when I think have no fear started to bubble at that time, like a little bit after my, my daughter was born, after she was born, uh, I still was performing a break for the five and I was trying to figure out like, okay, how do I do this? Cause I can't, I mean, I can go outside with my baby, but when we get pepper sprayed, that's just, and then my family's going to like jump on me cause I had a baby outside. In, mm-hmm. in some kind of, you know, whatever. So I was I was really kind of in a place of stuckness, and I think what pushed it through is then I became pregnant with my son in 2014, and I was doing a residency in Trinidad. And um, while I was in Trinidad, or while we were in Tobago, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started. So although we all knew know this, these things were happening already, have always been happening, it just became way more highly publicized. And I was like, yo, like, I got to go back to the United States, and I'm pregnant with this little boy. Like, it's all bad. So, so yeah, so that's what I was like, how am I going to teach my children to protect themselves? Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, like, now it's a state of emergency. And I had had pieces that people had kind of warned me about that I had done, like little singing and dancing pieces that then later became a part of Have No Fear that that my friends that were folklorists was like, you know, you got to be careful like singing and dancing and all that because you know, you talking about people and they might come get you. And I'm like, well, you know, Nina Simone did it, James Baldwin did it, Bob Marley did it, James Brown did it. Like, if they did it, like, shouldn't we be doing it too? Like, didn't they show us a way to do it? And so... Mm-hmm. I think I was building the work inside of other works for a very long time, but I think I was I was maybe a little scared to put it all together. Into, I knew mm-hmm. it was something, but I just didn't want to put it all in one piece because I knew if I did it like little by little, I could see how people would react to it. And they had some strong mm-hmm. reactions, even though they were just sections of pieces. And so when I got back to Brooklyn, um, there was, you know, the gentrification that's happening and the dislocation, all the things that are happening in the Bay Area are beginning to still beginning to happen in Brooklyn. It hasn't happened in the Bay out here as severely as it's happened in the Bay. But um, there was some filmmakers that wanted to collaborate with some neighborhood artists, and they were doing a fellowship for this organization called Union Docs. And so we were connected through one of the dancers in my company, and um, they were, they are, they were three white women that lived like in the neighborhood. So they were gentrifiers, and technically I'm a gentrifier too because I'm not from here. I'm not from Brooklyn, but I moved here. So, but my situation is a little bit different. And so, um, we started to work together. And for us, I mean, I took it to Ashe, you know, because Ashe a long time ago transformed from like just being a body of dancers and performers on stage to like a, a nation of 
mamas and babas and children and people that are all really taking care of each other, kind of like how folks did during the Great Migration when you would move from your various parts of the South and you would come up to the city. And even though you wouldn't have your blood family close, you would make your so that's in the, in the spirit of the Great Migration. We're, we kind of did the same thing. And so I took it to mm-hmm. them, and I was like, you know, these are three white women that want to do this film on us, but, you know, white folks stay making money off black suffering. So I was like, I don't know if we should do it. What do you guys think? And so they decided, they said, okay, yes, we will do it, but if anybody starts getting, like, major bread off it or anything, then we got to pump the brakes and we got to redo contracts and all this stuff. So Ashe agreed to do it, and we began the process. And for me, it was really like, okay, the new neighbors are here. They're not going anywhere. So instead of, like, just beasting out on the new neighbors, let's see what – let me try to be a human being. Let's share this lineage of being humans on the planet, and let's try to see what working together looks like. So we didn't have a whole lot of bumps and scrapes because, like I said, they're filmmakers. I'm a choreographer. We we share the lineage of art. So that really united us. You know, there was there was definitely cultural scrapes. And in the film, you know, there's things like I look like I'm a single mother when I have an amazing partner and I love him and he loves me, but it looks like I'm a single mother. And, you know, there's little things where I'm like, okay, you guys made some editing choices that were interesting. But I love them. They're wonderful people. And I guess they took this film all over the world. It won awards. And I, in the meantime, I just started going and getting my MFA and just living life and being a mama and being a choreographer, doing all the things I do. And then, like, a year later, it just had – the film had had a whole life. Like, when I was in Europe, I guess I was in Germany, and then the film was in Poland, and the Polish people wanted me to come to Germany. It was a, I was like, really? I was just reading books. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that all these things were happening. And so that's how the second section of Have No Fear started, right? Because it, it, in the film, it's called Have No Fear. So after right. they made the film Have No Fear, then I was like, Okay, I, I think that's what this piece, this next section of this piece is called. And so when okay. I then I started to go into my thesis, and that's when it really took shape. Where I decided, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna hit all these different ideas that really keep us silenced. And I really wanted to look at the idea if I I am a, an African American woman that has always grown up with fear. I've raised I've been raised in fear because. That's probably how your parents raise you. You just know not to act a fool because you're afraid either something's going to happen. You're always afraid something's going to happen or there's a consequence, you know, like a, such a thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if? What would it be if I really addressed white Jesus and how the iconography of white Jesus has negatively affected people of color across the planet? What would it be if I really wrote Aunt Jemima's quitting speech and I, you know, as a salute to, like, Aunt Jemima as the survival masquerade and, like, talked about how my grandma scrubbed your toilets and ironed your curtains so that I don't have to, so that everyone is clear about who we are. And, like, what if I taught my children rhymes, nursery rhymes, that would stick in their heads so if they ever got in a situation where they were faced with, police officers that didn't have their best intentions in mind. They would have this 
soundtrack playing in their head so they would know their next steps and they wouldn't flinch or put their hands in their pockets so that they got hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was there were several there were several motives for have no fear the bluesical and one the most important one was to keep my children alive and to keep all of our children especially Nashe because between now between us now there's about 13 children and most of mm. them are boys and so I was thinking about our boys and how we were going to teach them you know whatever we could because you know whatever can happen it doesn't mean like they have this song in their head and they won't get hurt but it, it may give them a very clear soundtrack as to their options. Um, mm-hmm. I was also, like, looking at the idea of ritual dance theater and <clears throat> the power of prayer, because in African tradition, my elders always teach us that you have to be really specific in your prayers and that the power of word is very strong. And so the the songs that go with the pieces um, – are very intentional and they're clear. You know, it's not, I've done so much work where so much of the, the music I've created is like coded and it's proverb and it's double entendre. And you see this in a break for the five, but in have no fear. It's really, it's, it just says what it is and it does what it does. It wasn't about like creating the most intricate choreography and abstracting things so far that people couldn't identify what they were because I want to get auntie such and such out of the laundromat to come and see what I'm talking about, to see if she'll come to the courthouse with me and hold a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to get, you know, the the this that foundation donor to see like, oh, that I that I've studied and that I've I have this certain level of technique. It's really about people being together in a room in a space and trying to figure out and shifting. It's not even offering an answer. It's really like, okay, if we get together in a space and we shift, then something else might shift. Because if you look at labor, if you look at when a person is in labor, like you really hope and pray that at the end of the labor that you have a child, that you have a person. But some people don't have that outcome. But whatever whatever the outcome is of labor, you still shifted, you still changed it, changed, and you still grew. And so that's that's what I think that I'm trying to do, especially when it comes to this time in history that we're in. Nobody really knows what to do because all of these constructs of whiteness and blackness and other and all of these different things, we were born into them. And so we can we can have all of our decolonizing, our imagination, all of these different things. But in the end, we're all trying to figure out, like, what actually to do to shift the, the like, foundations of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism that keep us all stuck. Because we, we live here, so we all support it. We're all a part of it. But nobody mm. really knows what we can do. And so my idea is real simple. It's like if we come together in a space and we actually shift our bodies in a space, then maybe that will cause some mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, well, I'm kind of, we're kind of out of time, but I wanted to um, give you an opportunity um, in closing to um, maybe talk about, um, maybe give the names of of the members of Ashe, and I know you're going to have um, a special um, Oakland-based musician who also yeah. serves as the music director, um, 
and I don't want to mess up um, his name. So that's why I'm not saying it unless you do it. So, yes, I want to know if you could give give the give the names of of you know the other members of of Ashe. So this process has been quite challenging because the cla- the ca- cast is split on the West Coast from um, even though Guy DeShallis is from New York and was mm-hmm. the artistic director of Ashe Dance Theater Collective for many, many years. He moved to the Bay Area. And so he is the the fiddler in the work, and he is the musical director of the work. We also have the extraordinary voices of Tossie Long and Zakia Shapeshifter Harris. They are just, like, gorgeous singers and amazing artists in their own right. Like, aside from me, they have their own things going on, and you should check them out. Um, mm-hmm. The other drummers we have working with us are Pablo Soto Campo Amor, and he is an extraordinary visual artist as well. And then we have Eliyahu Salam. Um, and so those are the Bay Area kind of Ashe folks. I would also put uh, Andrew, he's a lighting designer, and he has been with us since Counterpulse, so I would definitely throw him a, like a shout-out to him as a dope lighting designer. Um, from mm-hmm. the East Coast, uh, we have uh, Alexandra Jean-Joseph, we have Brian Polite, we have Kendra Ross, Aaron Holmes, um, ay, ay, ay. oh no, Kendra Holmes, Tanisha Newland, um, I think that's everybody, yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Those are all, right. Yeah, those are all the Ashe East and West folks. Okay, and um, the filmmakers again? Oh, um, I'm sorry, Imani and Zinga. That's the other one, Imani and Zinga. Oh. And Stephanie okay. Bostos. What am I doing? Bay Area, Stephanie Bostos. She's also in it. I'm so sorry. Stephanie Bostos is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it says that the project's filmmakers include um, Beata. Beata Kalinska. Uh, mm-hmm. Tracy Williams, who is also she's also working with us, like art direction, like helping us um, do some of our social media stuff, um, mm-hmm. and Sarah Jacobson, um, and everything really has been brought together as well by an organization called Purpose Productions, um, ran by Austin Edwards, and um, our production manager is Marisol Ibarra. So I think that's everybody. <laughs> right. Um so it's a whole village and, of people. Nice, nice. And again we're speaking to Adia Tamar Whitaker, um, about Ashe Dance Theater Collective, uh, having uh its West Coast premiere of Have No Fear of Bluesico again October seventeenth through nineteenth, um, Thursday through Saturday, that's next week, eight PM and uh that's at ODC, at ODC. and you can go to ODC um, dot dance forward slash bluesico and ODC is located in San Francisco and I'm looking for an address. Um, oh, here it is, three one five three Seventeenth Street, and uh, tickets are fifteen to thirty dollars. And um, um, I think is that everything? Um, yeah, do you have a website? I do. It's ashedance.com, A-S-E-D-A-N-C-E.com. Okay, super, super. All righty. Oh, I know what I was looking for. There's going to be a talk on next Friday 
um, October 18th at 6.30 at ODC. Uh, ODC right. is going to host you in a conversation, a public talk, presented in partnership with the Institute for Curata- Curatorial Practice and Performance based at Wesleyan University. So I think that part is free to the public. So folks will probably come out and hear you, you know, sort of ex- expound on, on the concept, you know, you know, with that that MFA, you got the language too, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Maybe you have MFA. copies of your dissertation for us to be able to take home. Um, <laughs> all righty, oh, well, super. MFA. Yeah, well, look forward to well, thank um, you so much. Uh, thank to seeing you, so much you next for week. Me. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. You so so much funny. For um, me. Yeah, uh, you were talking about Counterpulse San Francisco and just Curtis uh, Gravity. Uh, is presenting his um, second weekend of Invisible um, this weekend at, at Counterpost. I just thought that was kind of cool that, you know, sort wow. of you all are like crossing, you know, each other um, in the um, uh, in this conversation. So if you want to oh, say wow. hi to Jess, he's on the air now with uh, a couple of other choreographers, Sherwood. Uh, Adia. Ken. Oh, Sherwood, what's up? Hi. <laughs> and Gabriel Christian. <laughs> Hi there. Hi everybody. I'm so sorry. That was very loud. <laughs> I was, was so thrilled loud. to hear Adia, to the, the master who was already a master before the ma- MFA, I have to say. Aw, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Okay, yeah. so take care, everyone. <laughs> All right, safe travels. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Good luck. Uh, thank you all so much for your patience. Um, I'm glad glad you were able to, to say hey, uh, Sherwood. I'm glad you're also able to join us because I know you're going to be traveling in a minute um, to your next hey, destination. Hey, yeah, and and thank you so much, uh, Jess, um, for you know being available, Jess Curtis, to talk about you know your um, your. Uh, your program, you know, this year, this 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 season, oh. and uh, yeah, and I remember last year we had an opportunity to talk about gravity. I just love gravity; like it's so heavy, right? And we got people without electricity, <laughs> right? As we speak, like what? Mm-hmm. What? I mean, the people with money without electricity, like not the poor people that have been living without electricity on the streets for a minute, like they know how to survive, but the folks, like, wow, isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, turning off really the electricity is. like for five days maybe like oh. yeah. So yeah. we're looking at the maps. Who's going next? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, gravity presents invisible. How do you experience a performance by seeing it? What if that's not possible? So I'm trying to think. Should I run through all of your bios and then we could talk about invisible? How sh- you think that will work good? I mean, should we do it that way? Your call. Oh, can you tell us we're what, really, what invisible? We're happy to be oh. here. Okay. At well, your service. Maybe. So, Jess, why don't you tell us? I'll read your bio, Jess, and you tell us what um, <laughs> invisible is, and then I'll read Gabriel Christian and Sherwood. And Sherwood, I'll, we'll let you talk a lot because we know you might have to slip out. So, Jess Curtis is an award-winning choreographer and performer committed to an art-making practice informed by experimentation innovation, critical discourse, and social relevance. He has created and performed multidisciplinary works throughout the United States and Europe with the radical San Francisco performance contraband and core, 
and the experimental French circus company, Cahen Caja. Yes. Did I say it right? Okay. In 2000, he founded his transcontinental performance company, Jess Curtis Gravity. And that's a forward slash there after Curtis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curtis is active as a researcher and performance, and excuse me, researcher, writer, teacher, advocate, and community organizer in the fields of contemporary dance and performance. He holds an MFA in choreography and a PhD in performance studies from the University of California <coughs> at Davis. So, so with introduction um, to. Um, you know, what we're going to be talking about in, in your first weekend, this is your second weekend. Tell us, uh, Jess, about uh, Invisible, in in parentheses, and then Visible. Yeah, well, um, Invisible is a project we've been working on for almost two years now, or depending on sort of what which parts of our early experiments you count. Um, but this crew has actually been, we made a, a piece, uh, a sort of research piece in 2017, but the work really comes out of a lot of um, some of my experience um, as I've been collaborating with artists in the UK, particularly with Claire Cunningham, um, and I've had the opportunity over the last few years to see um, what a number of productions and then to, to build into my own production what are called access accommodations. Um, for people with visual impairments, as well as for deaf folk, too. But um, I got really interested um, in uh, in practices that allow people um, who with low vision or people who are blind to be able to experience dance performance. And, um, you know, I've grown up as a dancer and throughout my career experiencing dances from the inside, and I know how exciting a dance can be um, beyond just what you see from from the audience. So um, with with my last project with Claire, which was called The Way You Look at Me Tonight, um, we placed the audience on stage and we did we used a number of these practices that come out of making the work accessible to actually um, in, inspire audiences to feel the work in different ways, not just to sit back at the back of the auditorium and look at people jumping around on the other side of the room, but to really be in the middle of it. And that was uh, really successful and exciting, the way that Claire and I used that in that piece. And uh, But I felt like there was way more that we could do, um, and that was super interesting to me. So I invited Sherwood and Gabriel and... Um, or other dancers, two of them from Berlin and two more from here from the Bay Area. And we've been working for the last year and a half, um, building up and researching uh, on just different ways of utilizing all of the senses in performance. So we've been, uh, we're, yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the work. And I think I'm, I'm really proud of it. We've, we've run it for, we premiered it this summer in Berlin, and then we've just uh, opened it last weekend in Counterpulse, and we've gotten really great and are really looking forward to this next weekend. Oh, awesome, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So, Gabriel, um, Christian is a multidisciplinary artist bred in New York City and baking in Oakland, California. I hope that you have your <laughs> electricity still, Gabriel. Are you on that list? I or no? do, yeah. I have. 
I know. Actually, I'm totally safe from the list. I've been lucky. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, me mm-hmm. too. I'm like, oh, you know, you know, sort of like, yeah, I'm in the. I'm well, I'm in Alameda, but the people that are in the flats, like, right, like we're good. <laughs> yeah, we'll <sighs> see. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Gabriel's work um, uh, metabolizes the vernaculars with black B L A Q diaspora uh, futurity Afro vivalism. You can skip the next word. Vivalism a little bit hard for the radio. Uh, yes, it's okay. You can skip the next word. Okay, <laughs> um, through body-based live performance and poetics. Moreover, I should have had this together from last year, right? Moreover, they feel the bio <laughs> to be an unfortunate byproduct of capitalistic modes like chattel slavery. Ah, okay, we have to take a pause here. Okay. Um, Sherwood Chen has worked as a performer with artists including Grisha Coleman, uh, Yoko Kaseki. Uh, Yuko, Yuko Kaseki. Right. Yuko Kaseki, Amara Tabor Smith, uh, Anna Halprin, Min uh, Tanaka, Xavier Leroy, Inkboat, Komu. How do you pronounce? Um, Murobushi. That, that, uh, Murobushi. Well, basically, uh, Chris, yeah, I've, I've been around the block. <laughs> so we <know>. Right. <laughs> And and I know you teach classes at ODC because I went to their website. I'm like, oh, Sherwood is like all over this this schedule. Um, <laughs> he leaves workshops for, for performers for in. Oh, that's oh, okay. He leaves workshops for performers in studio and in natural and urban landscapes mm-hmm. worldwide. I remember running into you in Dakar. That was so cool. You and Amara. I think that was the last time we <laughs> saw each other. Almost it was in Dakar. Yeah. Oh, seriously? Dang, that was a long time ago. It was a long wow. time ago, yeah. Yeah, well, I really need to come see you in this. Uh, for over 20 years, <laughs> he has served as a cultural worker in public nonprofit and philanthropic, philanthropic <laughs> sectors, focusing on community <clears throat> arts programming, arts education, arts grant making, and as an artist act, advocate in the United States, with a focus on supporting tradition based Native Californian and immigrant artists. And he has a website, SherwoodChin.com. All righty. So, um, Sherwood and Gabriel, tell us about your work in uh, Jeff Jess Curtis' Gravity Presents Invisible. Go for it, Gabriel. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I know. That's why I beat you to it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll just start by saying that we've both been involved in this for about three years now. So I think it's the third year, actually, that we've been um, in rehearsal in some way for uh, a project. This is, of course, two different projects, but... The first one was in 2017, and that was a very different um, experience. It was a first take, um, first draft, I guess, in a way, for how we were um, entering as able – me, I'll talk for myself as, – as, as I was entering as an able-bodied dancer who had um, also limited experience dancing and limited experience with access questions. So um, that piece went up in 2017 and sort of opened up a lot of um, those uh, curiosities, and I think this round has been a lot – um, I've come from a place not of expertise, but of sort of more, um, more ability to understand how to talk about and and engage with um, these things that are really complicated around access and um, and, and visual impairment that I just didn't have any uh, any language for before. So um, our role has been kind of I mean my role has been very much like stepping in and um, feeling 
humble and also feeling like um, there's a lot of things that can be learned in the room and bringing my own sort of like joy to the process and laughter and um, my, my, I'm, I'm trained as a theater actor from, from Yale University, so I have like lots of experience with scripts and languaging things. And so this whole process has been also asking us to be very vocal, um, which I, I do plenty of in my own work. So it's been nice to see how that carries over to um, the dance context. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sherwood? Oh, yeah. Well, um, what, other thing I would add maybe would be that um, I... I um, I feel like the, with this piece, Jess is really trying to provoke and ask questions for the audience, uh, as you as you had read earlier in terms of um, the the material that you read at Wanda, in terms of asking, well, in what way do you experience a dance? And traditionally, dance is something that's really considered a very visual medium. Um, and I think that this provocation is, for me, hits me on two fronts. One is. I think for people in general who come together, the audience who's going to be there, we're going to share the space with the performers um, to really remind us of our, as humans, just our our ability to be able to perceive and to feel and that we would have all of these um, resources at our, our sensory resources that are, um, that, that are available for us. And so in that sense, I think that the piece really provokes that um, searching, opening, and questioning for uh, for not only the public, but also the dancers. And that brings me to the second point, which is as a performer, I think that I've had a career um, and been trained in a way to, to almost unconsciously assume that the visual was going to be the default dominant um, mode of, of uh, communication. And I think that for me, this project has been very provocative and inclusive of, as, as Gabriel was mentioning, the earlier phases when we were beginning to research this and taking a look at um, the, the very rich practice of audio description that exists for television film performances, but then beginning to see how that's incorporated in real time live dancing. And I would say that as a, as a performer, that's been a, a wonderful challenge and also really pushing me to, uh, in, in addition to specifically working with um, the uh, fellow artists on the team who have visual impairments and other team members as well. Um, Jess, you can talk about them maybe perhaps uh, next. But in terms of uh, working with them, really allowing me to um, figuratively and perhaps very literally opening my eyes to new ways of, of actually considering um, what it means to perform for a public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would, so if Jess, I could jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say um, these uh, both Sherwood and um, and Gabriel are such articulate people and super interesting collaborators to work with, but um, and also humble. And I want to I want to just underline. I, I think one of the dangers of this piece in talking about it is that because we do we are sort of inspired and coming from a place of research around sense around perception and stuff that um, it can sound very brainy. Um, and actually, the piece is inc- really, in both both Sherwood and Gabriel just dance amazingly and ecstatically in this piece. And I I get to watch this piece. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't perform in the piece. And, and just getting to feel the wind rushing by as either of them um, zoom through the room right in front of you or 
watch watch them um, work with each other. They have a really beautiful duet at the beginning of the piece where they just they just really quickly uh, describe little takes on what they're how they're interacting with each other, and they're they're just amazingly beautiful dancers, both both to see if you and to listen to. Um, so I'm I'm really honored to work with the two of them. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um, sort of how how invisible? Um, let's see. Uh, unpacks the differences between the ways non-sighted and sighted people experience and imagine a performance mm-hmm. or the world. Uh, because I was also looking at um, this, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the person's name, Alva Noe? Uh, Alva Noe, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no, no. Gerald, Gerald uh, Perner, uh, who is a um, yeah. photographer and uh, art critic and essayist and artist and who's also blind, talked about sort of how um, the performance um with your company, um, the the, um, the critic says that the room starts in my head, <laughs> um, uh-huh. and uh, then starts in the in the person's body, and then uh, the uh, partner writes, "I become the room. I don't recognize it, and I don't perceive it. I just become the room itself. Became the flesh between the pictures and the room." I'm like, wow. What an interesting I love, um, yeah. reflection on 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 the piece and on the work, and I'm like, okay, so how do how do you facilitate that? <laughs> you know, choreographers, you know, um, you know, in the studio presence, sure. how do you do that? Well, one of the things, that, one of the really basic things that we did was uh, we worked a lot in the dark, and we also mm. worked our composer Sam Hertz. Um, is a, a, a experimental composer who actually is a graduate of the master's program at Mills College in Oakland. Um, and Sam had us do a lot of of what what of deep what what are called deep listening exercises from um, an amazing artist, Pauline Oliveros. We did a lot of her sort of exercises around just listening to the room, and as as the dancers began to dance, thinking about how the the dance the sounds that their dance was making as much as what it might look like and because we were in the dark what it might look like um was kind of irrelevant in a certain way so um i think there's that element of it and it's been um and then the the audience is really literally in the room with us that you have a, a number of choices um, you can either sit around the edges when you come, like the risers at Counterpulse, we've blocked off. And so it's, everyone is on the stage. And then there are, there's a row, a circle of chairs in the middle facing out. So those people are literally right in the middle of the dance. And then there are a variety of other places sort of on the diagonals and throughout the space where you can sit and the dancers literally you know, rush past you or uh, are dancing around you. Gabriel has this amazing <laughs> moment in one of the large sections where he just, he, they, uh, Gabriel runs around and says, says, I'm orbiting, I'm orbiting. And, um, and his orbits each of the, the sort of positions in the room and you feel Gabriel, you know, brushing past you and, 
and um, and really in a kind of ecstatic state. It's really transcends in a different way. So I think um, what Gerald talks about is is this mobilization of hearing and feeling the room sort of locates mm-hmm. it in a different way. Whereas when we're used to just looking at things across the room, they're distant, they're farther away, they're other than us. And in I think when we, we take away vision, so yeah, in this piece, about 20 minutes of the piece in total is, is in the dark um, in, and very low lighting. So you, it, we hope to bring your attention to your, your other senses um, other than vision. So you really get to feel your own body in the middle of it and feel part of it. Mm, wow. That sounds really, really fascinating. Um, and then there are um, pre-show touch tours for every show. Yeah. Um, as well as ASL interpretation um, uh, for, I guess, um, uh, deaf, and it says D four slash deaf audiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the pre-show mm-hmm. touch tour? Does one of you want to explain our pre-show touch tours? Gabriel Sherwood. Uh, well, uh, from my experience of it, it's been a uh, we have these we have these elements of the set that are maybe hard to explain when the audio describer is talking about the show when it's happening. So before the show, we'll invite visually impaired audiences or folks who maybe are curious about the. Um, the usage of this sort of um, new technique in uh, making things visible for folks um, to come early and they can they can feel the props of the set, get a sense of the room, and also talk to all the performers beforehand who will describe themselves um, kind of from top to bottom, what they're wearing, what kind of sounds their shoes make, and that way during the show when um, they're being described, it won't be as much of a jump to, to imagine where they might be, who they might be, what they might look like, um, what the room might look like. So it's sort of like a, it's like a, pre, a preamble. Uh, kind of thing for those who we also, will have a harder time uh, gathering. Those. We also, um, in that, and usually in the touch doors, we also hone in and zone, zoom into a specific moment in the piece that will be performed and really try to break it down in a way to be able to allow um, those who are taking the touch tour to to feel the contours of uh, our our physical positions um, to be able to describe what happens so that they, they can get um, some insight that uh, say you would you wouldn't necessarily get just by coming to the performance. Mm, wow, that's really 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 nice. Um, so um, I was wondering, uh, Gabriel and and Sherwood, if you could talk about if I don't know if your primary um, uh, sense is visual um, or not. Mm. But I was wondering, sort of shifting from um, sort of the way that you operate, you know, as a, a sensory being to be able to um uh to be able to I guess envision and create work that has a strong other sense that one, you know, maybe that you weren't as strong and in you know, then but probably now you are because you've been working on this I think you said for a year or two. 
Well, it's been a challenge. It's been um, it's been quite a rich challenge for me. Like I, I feel like mm-hmm. even though we we have we had started research a couple of years back, it's it's something that every day I'm having to come into the space and try to find something new, and also to, to and really to, to say that this is also something that Jess really encourages uh, for us is that this is not just some sort of written piece with everything kind of set. Um, <laughs> Uh, set and choreographed to the T, and there's a real commitment in this. Is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jess, but I feel like there's a re- also a real, a real dedicated commitment to the high art of improvisation, which is also an additional mm-hmm. challenge, which really allows us, pushes us towards being very present in the moment, which then, to go back to your question, Wanda, really demands us to have to touch base with what we're feeling, what we're sensing, and what we're perceiving. And so for me, even though we have four more performances this week, Thursday through Sunday, uh, each night having to come into sort of an arena of senses in order to, to navigate it as a performer and also in many ways in respect to who is there in the space, the, the chemistry or the frequency of, of the public who's there, that constellation of people. Mm-hmm. Ah, wow. Yeah. So um each night is is I mean there is the scaffolding but there's room for change so that um the audience participates in the creation of the work that um they're perceiving. To some degree. I mean I I think I would I pers- I would maybe describe it. It's a little more sturdy than just scaffolding. Um Okay. So that I, we have we have we call them scores, um, sort of like mm-hmm. a musical score. So mm-hmm. um, the each section, um, I would say, if you come more than once, which now several people have come multiple times, um, mm-hmm. each section sort of looks the same, but the exact um, actions or things, the, the the specific actions or things that a, a dancer might do or say in any given moment are are open because we are working as Sherwood said very much with what are you perceiving right now if one of the first scores the dancers are all lying on the floor in the dark and their score is to pick one of the sensations in their body and just tell the audience like I'm feeling pressure against the floor or I'm beginning to see a shimmer of light on the golden curtain or um and so every night to be really true to that process and really reflect something um that is actually happening in their body at every moment is is what we try to do. So there's still a structure to that, you know, because they're all lying on the floor. Pretty much every night somebody will say, I'm feeling pressure against the floor <laughs> but um <laughs> but it's really open it's really open to to uh, them really being in that. And then we have what we call, uh, we've, we've made up a new word we call grammaturgy. So it's kind of mixing the word dramaturgy with grammar. Um, so uh, one of the tools we use in this sort of collision of using language to describe movement is that each, um, throughout the piece, different scores have different grammatical structures. So in that opening, in that opening phase, people speak um, in the first person um, 
first person present and say, I am walking across the room, I am jumping, I am running around. Whatever they're doing, they speak about themselves. And then there's a really beautiful duet later in the piece where um, on uh, where Gabriel and, and one of the German performers, Xenia, speak to each other and, and they describe what the other person is doing. So they'll speak in the second person and say, you are, you are holding a microphone. You are smiling at me. You are feeling embarrassed. Um, and so using those kind of structures uh, are, are kind of the, the core of how we keep a balance of having the piece be consistent each night and, uh, and also be alive in every moment, every night too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so invisible is, uh, created and performed by an international cast of six blind, visually impaired and sighted body based dancers and performers. So, um, uh, Sherwood and, and Gabriel, how, how has it been, um, or maybe maybe this was not something that you hadn't um, experienced before, but working with, with artists that um, have different sensorial abilities, um, like, for instance, I believe if a person is, is, is visually impaired or blind, that they probably have heightened um, abilities in other areas. So I was just wondering um, sort of how, how that's worked out insofar as creating the work that you all have that you're presenting presently. Um, it's, been, it's been really... Oh, go ahead. Okay, sorry. It's been really um, actually funny because one of the things that I definitely have noticed with um, one of the performers named Tiffany, who we've worked with for two years now, uh, she makes a joke mm-hmm. a lot that, um, that sighted people don't really listen that well. Uh, so even when we're, like, getting notes from Jess or we're talking amongst ourselves, um, she'll have all the information, like, usually, like, like minutes before any of the rest of us have it because we've all been sort of talking over each other and not quite tuned into our listening sense. And she's definitely mm. recording everything in her auditory space. So she has, like, the instructions down. She knows when things are happening. She knows all these things are um, are kind of uh, are clear to her from a, from that space. And so I've been constantly aware of how much I'm – uh, still, still very much publishing my visual uh, information in, in terms of gags, jokes, notes, all these things. It definitely comes up in the rehearsal process. Um, but apart from that, I think it's been really um, gorgeous. I mean, not just working with folks who are fine visually impaired, but also working with folks who are German. Um, it's been also a new thing for me in working with people with different language abilities. Uh, we went to Germany, mm-hmm. and the, the piece actually was, a little, was actually performed more in German there than it is here in the Bay. So uh, mm-hmm. also having the sort of um, disposition of my language as well, as well as my ability was sort of a uh, new thing for me, and also working abroad was a new thing for me. So personally, it was a lot of uh, steps towards um, trying to understand what it is to be a performer internationally and also through different types of bodies. So I, I did appreciate that. Um, a lot personally, but sure, we can go ahead and, and add. No, I just that. wanted to add, and also it was a little bit reflecting upon Wanda your your uh, previous question, what my experience was as a performer and working with uh, a cast of, of uh, people of just people who see in different ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I, as a sighted performer, am actually a representative of a dominant culture, and I think that in working with these performers, it has been incredibly humbling and opening for me to be able to recognize how light-dependent, as, as a term that we've kind of discussed in, 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 our, in our process, light-dependent I am, and that actually is a, a great handicap that actually 
has pushed me to try to um, ask bigger, bigger questions of what it means to, to as a performer, to perform and in, in, in what way are we sharing. Um, and so this project really has set that up so that those kind of standards, which are so revolving around the kind of dominant visual culture, um, are really put into question. And to be able to work with these performers um, who are so skilled at being able to... Uh, um, is is wonderful. I mean, the, these moments in the dark that we're, we were, you know, trying to train in the dark. Um, <laughs> there's there's the the cast who is much more light dependent ends up, um, whoa whoa, you know, feeling so disoriented. Meanwhile, um, Tiffany Taylor, who who um, Gabriel mentioned, is like what it's the same. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, she has uh, full command and competent competency in the space and. And uh, that's really a great thing to to see and learn, and it's it's a challenge. Um, as somebody who's representing a dominant culture, uh, it takes so long to be able to undo those kind of um, um, conditions. Mhm. Yeah. 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 When I when I think about um, uh, you know being being light dependent, um, and and I I see how well you know, people that are not light dependent function, um, <laughs> you know, uh outside of that particular paradigm. There there's a fear, um, and there's also a trust. I mean there if there was trust then there wouldn't be the fear. But because um you know, when when you're in different spaces like trying to cross the street or in the public and you know, there's a lot going on and you have to move in the space and you want to be safe it's like ah so i'm really happy that i can open my eyes and 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 you know navigate myself across these different you know spaces but i just wonder about you know as 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 choreographers and dancers you know the whole idea of trust and fear and and where where does that go <laughs> um when you are um you know, put into situations or you put yourself in a situation where um, there's a need to lean on somebody else, somebody else's strength even. Yeah, I think one of the things we're uh, we're learning or we have learned and we continue to work on is also, um, is also not projecting um, onto people with visual impairment. Um, one of our collaborators Georgina Klieg, who is a blind author um, who uh, teaches at, at, at Cal at, at UC Berkeley, has a great mm-hmm. book called um, More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art. And she has a great mm-hmm. chapter in that book just talking about all the ways that we use blind people as metaphors for either being ignorant or being mm. um, being the needing our sympathy or needing our our help and she's quite um, adamant about you know there there are lots of, of very autonomous blind people that that um, that really get along in the world and as mm-hmm. with many kinds of disability it really comes down to what are the structures that we as a society create that get in people's way or that are, you know, sight dependent um, or light dependent, as Sherwood calls it, um, that, that are, what are ways that we, yeah, that, that we've constructed um, 
situations that 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 rely on sight. So I think it's really um, been in, super interesting to just sort of get some of those out of the way and and develop different practices. So like when we're sitting in a room, noticing how how often we'll just say, you know, oh over there and point our point our head or our gaze toward <laughs> something and expect mm-hmm. everyone in the room to know what we're talking about. And it's been re- that's a really a really um, pernicious habit to try to get over and remember to say over to my left in the you know in the back corner of the room um, or even just in it talking about talking to someone in a room instead of just saying you when there are five people in the room and and knowing how how so little habits like that that are that are interesting mm-hmm. to notice and go oh okay that's um, that's something. And then, and then I think there's something I really I find um, sort of these situations also like that Sherwood and Gabriel were describing about just noticing attend people's attention that it's it's a bit of a myth that um, blind folks have actually heightened sense abilities in other directions. It's really just that they they in general folks that aren't relying on sight have have more of their attention in into in listening and so it's not mm-hmm. it's actually something we can learn from them uh, from our collaborators is like yeah just you, you listen more and 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 it's not it's not a super it's not you know daredevil super ability it's just <laughs> mm-hmm. paying attention to what you hear more than you know as much as what you see so that's been super interesting mhm Right, right, yeah. And I just also think about people that are um, deaf or um, that uh, speak ASL, um, how, you know, I have friends that that speak ASL, but they also read lips for those of us who are not fluent in their language. And so it's like, oh, I can't, I've got to face the person, right? Right. You can't exactly. you can't talk behind yeah. their head, and so you know you're talking yeah. about you know different orientations, right? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. We we know that, or if we think about it, it's like, oh yeah, these are not super people. They just, you know, sort of honed in on other aspects of their sensory um, tools that, like you yeah. said, we we could do, but you know the default mm-hmm. is visual when you can. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, and I think it's important mm-hmm. that we create mixed. Because all it takes is spending a little bit of time with somebody who's different than you to mm-hmm. notice and go, oh, right, okay, I need to pay attention to that. And now for me, I often walk into performances or things and I notice, I notice like, oh, this is not accessible. And why, with some really simple choices, somebody could make it a more accessible space. So I think the more... The more mixed um, we have, the more accessible spaces are, then the the wider range of people that can access them, and the more we all become familiar with with more diversity and and can support more diversity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to keep you all because I know Sherwood, you have somewhere to go. But wondering, closing, um, maybe you might want to talk about who you like to see in the audience, um, who you haven't seen yet in the audience. And then, Jess, I wanted you to talk about the Lighthouse for the Blind and the uh, the Center for Cultural Innovation. But I know the uh, Lighthouse for the Blind, they, they're a really wonderful um, 
organization, a friend of mine um, is a part of it. So anyway, I want you to be able to talk about that too. Cool. Go Who would you like to see? Gabe? Um, I don't know. Apart from just folks who are in the dance community, I guess I really wouldn't mind seeing uh, more folks from the neighborhood come see the show. Um, and mm-hmm. also um, folks who maybe uh, have less experience with dance. I think we'll get a really holy experience from this kind of uh, work because it really is giving them so much more, so much more sensation than they would get from watching a ballet. So that's my, my, first, uh, my first understanding of who I would love to see there in the face of us. Yeah, Sherwood, do you have any particular audiences here you wish would be there? Uh, well, I agree with Gabe, and I also think that this is the kind of piece that both uh, traditional dance and theater audiences would uh, come out feeling really stimulated by because it really challenges uh, the the existing notions of what a performance is in terms of its visual, typical visual orientation. But also I think that um, anybody who has a body who, who actually can sense is, is, would, would, would be able to get a lot out of the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I mean, I'm just as, as a producer <laughs> of, this, of this piece, too, I'm like, I want everyone to come. I think it's an amazing show for everybody. Um, regardless of whether you have, I think there are different things in it for different people. It's really fun and really funny. Um, mm-hmm. the, and um, the performers are amazing and the set and costumes are beautiful. And the the music <clears throat> that Sam has made that underpins um, all of this talking that we've talked about is really beautiful. So it's, it's a, it's, it's it's a smart show, but it's also really entertaining and, and engaging. And um, so I hope anyone, it's a great date night. I've been telling some of my friends that you get to, you can sit in the dark and hold your hand, the hold, hold the hand of your date. Um, and Although it's really fun. You also run the risk that some, one of the performers may hold your hand. As well. <laughs> yes, that that is oh, okay. possible. Or sit on your lap if you sit in certain chairs and have consent and that, that where you've opted into being in contact with the performers. One of them may sit on sit on your lap or give you a head massage at some point during the piece. Audience members always we reserve they reserve we reserve the right that the audience members always have the right to say no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, so, would you say that this would be great for um, all ages? Like parents could bring their children. Absolutely. I'm, uh, the one thing is that there, there's uh, a cup, one extended period of, of absolute darkness um, mm-hmm. that we had in Berlin. A, a colleague of ours tried, tried the experiment of bringing his one-year-old, um, and mm-hmm. who made it five minutes through the darkness and then sort of got a little upset and and they had to leave. But, but it's really, um, yeah, it's really fun and visual. And ironically, it's also, it is a very visual piece, but, um, and swirling around and it's a really fun piece and accessible, I think, to a whole age range. Um, there have been a number of kids that have come and, and seen it and, uh, and enjoyed it. And it's about an hour long. It's, it's an hour long without an intermission. So it's not, you know, a three-hour opera. Long. 
Yeah, so I think all ages and all styles and of folks can can really access something in it. Mhm. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and all the performances take place at Counter Pulse, 80 Church Street in San Francisco, and you can visit JessCurtisGravity.org forward slash invisible for the box office, or you can call 415-626-2060, and tickets are reasonable, 10 to $30, so that's pretty cool as well. Um, yeah, so Jess, um, tell us a little bit about uh, Lighthouse. Um Sure. I mean, yeah, Lighthouse for the Blind has been really supportive over the last four years of, as we've been developing this kind of work. Um, Serena Olson, in particular, the adult uh, adult programs coordinator there, um, have brings has brought groups of, of folks to uh, to our shows. There, I think I, I think there the Lighthouse has actually bought a block of tickets on Friday night. And um, if you're a, a San Francisco resident and you have visual impairment or are a member of Lighthouse for the Blind, you can come for free to the show. You need to contact Lighthouse to do that. But um, we've been, uh, over the last year, uh, teaching contact improvisation dance classes at Lighthouse. And then, and they've been also bringing folks to a number of our um of our sort of work in progress showings to kind of test out yeah. how how do these techniques work for folks that that uh, that have visual impairment, um, and so that's been a really in good uh, partnership. We're also Gravity's um, in addition to to this piece that has all of these sort of access accommodations embedded in it. We're also offering audio description <clears throat> and touch tours. Um, for other artists' work, so we've got a we've kind of built a little uh, set of programs that we call Gravity Access Services, where we can come to your show if you're a choreographer and want to make your work accessible, or a, or a theater director, um, mm. you can uh, you can hire us to come in and we'll watch the piece and then describe it. Gabriel and Sherwood have both um, worked oh, at, nice. to describe cult, different cultural events in the Bay Area over the last two years and and mm-hmm. we're building up that service and we're going to be doing um, for Shotgun Players Play Elevada in, in Berkeley on uh, November mm-hmm. 17th in the afternoon and we'll be doing something at OBC for Hope More on November 9th and we're going to be describing for Axis Dance um, at who are yeah. performing at Z-Space in San Francisco on October 27th so um, we're doing. There's a lot of that, and we've we've done a lot of that partnering with Lighthouse for the Blind as well. Um, they've been really supportive and instrumental in our um, in our sort of development of that practice and helping us reach out to blind audiences um, around the Bay Area to to do that. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, that's really great. That's really yeah. really great. Yeah. So we'll have everybody who wants to be in the audience can be in the audience. Yeah. And also on stage as you know, as you are illustrating, you know, in the work and Axis has a really long tradition of, of doing um really wonderful work um for a variety of different kinds of folks, you know, different bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, we see everybody on the stage, which is great because sometimes, you know, you think like who's missing, right? Yeah, exactly. Well yeah, and this is yeah. I mean Tiffany Tiffany is actually a 
prime example of that, that Tiffany trained as an actor in college, but the first time that she had come to an audio describe, she came to Claire in my piece uh, in 2016, um, three years ago, and um, was, and it was the first time that she had been to an audio described dance event. And coming out of that, she was inspired and she came to a workshop that I was teaching. And then I invited her to be in a piece. And when you think about, you know, when I think about how I became an artist, it was because I went and saw something I actually think I, my first dance program was seeing the Oakland Ballet when I was in high school up in Chico, California, and the Oakland Ballet came, and I went, I wanted, I was, I saw it, and I went, I want to do that, and I started taking ballet classes in in high school, and um, and that I think in order to make make also the who's on stage more diverse, we need to let. A more, a more diverse range of people experience the work. And then I think it really comes around when more diverse artists are able to train and become professional, then we have a much more rich range of voices um, pr- creating culture in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Any any um, concluding thoughts from anyone? Have we covered everything? Other Thank than you need to so actually come see it, <laughs> experience it. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. Yeah, it's really a pleasure, Wanda. We appreciate the work that you continue to do. And, yeah, we hope people come listen, see, feel the the, the piece. It's really with – I think we're sold out already on Friday night, but there are still tickets for Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I hope people will come. Yeah, Thursday, tomorrow, right. <laughs> yeah, Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Well, thank you once again for the wonderful conversation, and uh, congratulations on being able to continue the work, you know, for such a sustained length of time. Uh, Jess, it's really wonderful um, that you are doing such great fundraising and, you know, sort of filling in these niches so that, you know, this kind of work can happen. Well, it's a pleasure. And we, we appreciate, yeah, that small radio station continue to exist as well and to help spread the word. So, oh, Well, thank you. All right. You all take good care. I look forward to seeing you all and on stage. Right. You too. Thank great. you. Have a great You too. Okay. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are going to close with uh, – a rebroadcast of an interview with Andrew Saito, um, the playwright for El Rio, which is currently at Brava through uh, the end of this month. And um, and Andrew's going to be flying back from New York uh, for a series of conversations, um, the weekend that has the 30th in it. <laughs> and um, and then we, we have an interview with Leslie um, Currier and Damien Brown from Marin Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream, about a Midsummer Night's Dream, which closed, so you're not going to be able to go see that. But you can hear them talk about the uh, All People of Color cast and um, and the idea of consent, uh, which you know was 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 a, a through line philosophically in in their production of the work. And then we close with Stella Heath, who talks about the Billy Holiday Project, which is tomorrow at um, 
uh, Feinstein's at Hotel Nico in San Francisco, just one night only. Uh, she's going to be doing her um, Billy Pro- the Billy Holiday project, so you want to definitely try to catch that. Because I don't know where it's going to show up next. I mean, it's not the first time that it's been produced, but um, it sounds really, really marvelous. So anyway, enjoy. And we'll be coming back with another edition of Wanda's Picks on Friday morning, 8 o'clock Pacific Time. Para su Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for the African deity, Eshu Legba. A deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should definitely take a minute, pause, and exercise our options and not think that what's directly in front of us is the only path available. So we are so excited to have um, in the studio... Um, I think this is, uh, I'm not sure if it's Idris, um, Anifa Moshe Cooper, or Andrew Saito, um, the playwright for Rio, El Rio. Um, so who's in the studio? <laughs> is Andrew here? Oh, hey, Andrew, I know we don't have a long time. Congratulations on the opening of your play, El Rio, this Friday, September 27th, and going all the way through Sunday, October 20th at Brava Theater Center. Um, so it's a it's a collaboration, right, um, with um, the uh, the smaller theater company um, that uh, Idris is one of the founders of. Correct. The Black the Black Artists Contemporary Cultural Experience (BACC). Right, right, yeah, and and you are no stranger to the airways. Uh, we're we're so happy to have you on, even even briefly, you know, because you're getting ready to take a flight. Thank Where you, are you I going? Appreciate- I'm flying back to New York. Oh, you're in New York now. Okay. Which, which, is, which is where I live now. <laughs> I I live there these days. Oh, okay, yeah, because you used to live here. Oh, so you I got did, your play indeed. all ready to go, and now you're gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are an international playwright whose focus focus you focus on indigenous and cross racial stories, hybridity and struggles against colonialism and its long lingering footprints. You worked with Peru's legendary theater collective, 
uh, Grupo Cultural. Um, how do you pronounce that? Okay, Yuyachikani. Yeah, and Cuba's Conjunto Cultural. And finish that one for me too. So it's Conjunto Cultural Corimacao, which is a okay. uh, um, uh, arts and a multidisciplinary arts center created in Cuba in the early 90s during the special period um, when there was very little. Uh, people were kind of starving, and yet the government felt it was important to still support the arts, so they created this People's Art Center very close to the Bay of Pigs. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and then keep on going, because I don't know how to pronounce um, Asociación and then the rest okay, of that. Okay, Asociación Chaco Tun is uh, indigenous, is a Mayan theater ensemble in Guatemala, and my collaborator and dear friend, Joaquin Valdez, and I have been collaborating with them for a few years, about two years now, two and a half years, and um, mm-hmm. We had a show earlier this year at La Peña Cultural Center and then at El Teatro Campesino called Men of Rabinal, and that was about the um, the Rabinal Achi, the this 500-plus-year-old Mayan dance drama, which is the only known uh, pre-Hispanic play um, mm. that from before the conquest to still be performed in Mesoamerica. Nice. That sounds awesome. I'm so sorry I missed that. Wow. I need to well, follow We'll be bringing it back. We'll be, we'll, we'll be bringing oh. it back. So. At oh, Hope super, super. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, the kind of work that you do is just so, you know, phenomenal. Um, I remember when we spoke last, I think um, you had a play at um, as a part of the uh, Bay Area Playwrights Festival. And, um, oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And that was, yeah. And that was, you know, that was a really um, a story that we don't hear about a lot. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about this particular work. Um, you know, you own you uh, you hold a, B, a MFA from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, and Idris uh, Anifa Roche Cooper does too, and, and she taught there. <laughs> yes, and you were a Fulbright. Yes, okay. No, go ahead. Fulbright scholar, correct? Yeah. No, no, you were going to say something about Idris. Oh, I, I don't, I don't remember. She's okay. wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, you were um, a Fulbright scholar in Papua New Guinea, which sounds really Correct. fascinating. And did a play come out of that? <laughs> uh, a screenplay came out of that. It has yet to be made, but I still have hopes Ooh. and faith that it will, that it will end up end up uh, bec- end up becoming uh, something for audiences. Yeah, yeah, but um, I want to let you talk a little bit about about this play because um, the time is taking away, and and then we can come back to um, some of the things you 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 care about that you're really passionate about. Um, <laughs> so Great. tell us about El Rio. So El Rio is the very first play I ever wrote back in um, 2002, actually, and. It, um, you know, I wrote it as my undergraduate thesis at, for the Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley. That's where I majored. That's what I majored in. And it, the play takes place along the Texas-Mexico border, and it follows um, two women, a black Seminole woman named Francisca. She's a veteran of, of the Iraq War. And then she basically saves, uh, saves a just-arrived 
refugee from Guatemala, a Mayan woman in Rosario, and she's about to be raped by, is that how the place starts? I'm not really spoiling it. She's about to be raped by a border vigilante, so Francisca saves her, saves her life, and then the two of them are on the run from the law, and the play basically mm. follows the Rio Grande, um, well, you know, the plot is sort of linked to the course of the river, and they are being pursued by Reynaldo, who is a um, somewhat professionally stagnated border patrol agent who's looking for his chance to rise in the ranks and find glory, and he views them, he's hoping to catch them as a, um, as a way to do that. Hmm. Wow, wow. But this is your first play. How many plays have you written? <laughs> oh, I've lost count. It's 20 something. It's 20 something. But this is the yeah. first play I ever wrote, and it is very much, very, there's the imprint of, of three professors um, who, who I was staying with at that time. The first, Shedi Moraga, who was my first, um, first playwriting mm. mentor. She, and wow. I took her Chicana, Chicana Latina Theater Workshop at, at Berkeley two years in a row, mm-hmm. and then I studied with her in her playwriting classes at Stanford. And so she, it's a play, and I became a playwright because of her. And mm. um, and then also she dealt a lot with – she had us look a lot at issues of, of borders. And so the border I, – I don't even quite know how it became the Texas-Mexico border, but um, – but that just became the right place. And mm-hmm. and then I was also taking a class with Taya Miles called Africans in Indian Country, which is a which was a seminar that focused on black native shared history, relations, etc. Um, throughout mm-hmm. the US US history over the past few centuries. And so Taya is a black woman and her husband is Native American and so she has her, her scholarship, as far as I understand, her scholarship before meeting him was focused on black women's history and literature, and then she met him and fell, she met and fell in love with this Native American man and realized that that the two of them uniting, if you will, wasn't a totally new or unique phenomenon in American history or U.S. history, better mm-hmm. put, um, and that the the um, how to put it the um, the weaving together of black and native narratives in this country is pretty old. It's probably as old as the history of black people, the presence of black people in this country or in this continent, better put. And so um, so that's how the, this one main character, Francisca, this black feminine woman, came about was because I was I was um, taking Tyus' class and as a mixed-race hybrid, culturally hybrid person myself, while I am neither in my own DNA, neither black nor Native American, I still was very drawn to um, the Taya's field of study, and mm-hmm. so she was. A, she and Shuri were my closest mentors on the project. And then the other character, Rosalia Chen, who's a Maya Achi woman from the village of Rio Negro in the middle of Guatemala. Um, Rio Negro is the site um, of a massacre in, I think, 1982. There was a village that did not want to. Um, they were ordered to be relocated. So that the government with World Bank funding could build a hydroelectric dam, but that when that dam was built, it was going to flood their village. So the government told them to move. They didn't. They refused to move. 
there were threats. The men left, thinking that everyone else would be safe, that they would be the targets. But then these soldiers and paramilitaries arrived and um, massacred everyone who was left, which was women, senior citizens, or elders, and children. Very few survivors. So Rosario is a survivor of that massacre. And I learned about that massacre in a class with a third professor at Berkeley, Claudia Carr, who her class was um, called Indigenous Communities and International Development. And we looked at how giant conglomerations and institutions like the World Bank and the IMF had great sway over indigenous cultures all over the planet. And um, this case of Rio Negro in Guatemala was one case that he also looked at Alaska, West Papua, I think Hawaii, and, and mm-hmm. um, Canadian Amazon. And so that, that, that was the stew in which I was in my very early 20s, um, you know, mm-hmm. at the stew I was in at, at, at Cal, and um, it all sort of coalesced into this play, and, and now 17 years later, um, Idris mm-hmm. is doing a marvelous job directing it, and, mm-hmm. and um, she, she first read the play when she was a panelist on the Global Age Project at Aurora Theater in 2012. When I was in Papua New Guinea, I sent, I did it. I was in Papua New Guinea, so I revisit this play every few years, and have mm-hmm. been, and um, you know, lie dormant for a few years, and I'll come back to it. And so in 2012, I don't know what inspired me, but I was in Papua New Guinea. And I completely rewrote the play from basically mm. the ground up. And while the plot and characters are the same, and some of the scenes are kind of, um, you know, are similar to what they were originally. Um, mm. I cut the cast from eight to, to four actors. And that's the other main characters. I mentioned the two women and Reynaldo, the Border Patrol agent. The play is united by by El Rio that gives the play its title and that mm-hmm. character played by, by Carla Pantoja is the Rio Grande as a person, right? Or as a person embodying the river or the border. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she not only gives life and voice to the land, but she also portrays all the other characters in the play and there are a lot of minor characters. And so they are basically um she she she's literally the border, and she's also she also plays the people who live on the border, right on both sides, mm. Mexico and Texas, and mm-hmm. and she's a shapeshifter, she's a trickster, she's a narrator, and and in her nar- her narration takes the form of gorillos, and gorillos are a traditional northern Mexican song form, which during the time of the Mexican Revolution were used as a form of journalism before TV for radio, and so. These singer-songwriters would sing songs. They would compose and then sing songs about Pancho Villa and other like the, the events of the day. And they would go around around the villages in northern Mexico, um, to telling to keep people off the day. So she she that and that was always my um, vision back in 20, 2002 was to have the play have corridos in the play, but time I felt incapable of writing them and so in a way that this play the original vision of this play was beyond my artistic skills at the moment so i mm-hmm. in a way i've had to mature into a playwright capable of actually executing my original vision wow how fun right 
you know, like just sort of coming back to a work that in its genesis is is perfect, but then you have to live some more and get some more skills, and then you revisit it and you birth this this more mature, um, you know, entity. That's really great. And uh, and you are going to be coming back because I noticed that you and Idris are going to have um, a conversation in October when you return. Yes. Um, so you won't be here for opening night this weekend, but you'll be back, um, let's see, uh, Friday, October 18th, through uh, Saturday, October 19th, and then Sunday. Um, Correct. Right, super. Right. And which which day is the panel? Um, I mean, the panel, but the discussion with Idris is it going to be every evening or in the afternoon on the twentieth, or just one of those? I I suspect it's on Saturday. The um, I mean, I, pardon the me, I, I suspect it'll be on Friday. On Friday, the eighteenth, I suspect so. Okay. All right. Cool. Super. Super. Um, do you have to dash? <laughs> we can have it. We can take a few more minutes. Okay. Super. I just wanted to um to talk a little bit more about um you know the uh you know your your own hybridity you know sort of being um from multiple cultures and and also wanted to just say uh Cherie uh, Moraga of the um this bridge call my back uh, fame. Exactly. I was like yes, oh my yes, god yes. like for real for real like you had all these powerful women professors like you know when you're just like a newbie <laughs> in in higher yeah, education. Yeah, it was really like, a real, whoa. A real blessing. Really yeah, yeah, and and hopefully you know they'll be able to come see the rebirth of this work, right? Um, I, I hope they're I around. Emailed Cherie, I emailed Cherie. Claudia will probably come see it. She saw Minna Rabinow, um, mm-hmm. and then Taya has lived long within Michigan. But I'll send her, I'll send her the video. Yeah, yeah, because this is such a tribute to to their ah, scholarship. Awesome. You know, you know, coming through you, <laughs> like. Wow, I mean, to have a student, like, really? <laughs> Andrew, really? Yeah. Well, thank you. you know, thank this you. is like the biggest tribute that anyone could give, um, you know, a teacher to be able to produce work that mm-hmm. demonstrates your understanding of, you know, the philosophy and intentions of, of the scholar. Mm, well, thank you for saying that. That, that means a lot. Yeah, yeah. So talk about yourself a little bit more. I mean, you're just like the work that comes through you is like, oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, so I am the uh, grandchild of. No, no, no. Pardon me. I am. I am the I'm the grandchild of survivors of the Japanese American internment. Specifically, my father's parents met in Manzanar when they were incarcerated during mm-hmm. World War II. And I am the great-grandchild of immigrants from Japan, Austria, and I believe the great-great-grandchild of immigrants from Ireland. Um, And my mother, may she rest in peace, was the oldest of seven children, uh, grew up in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, a little coal town, coal or steel town, pardon me, steel town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, when she was 13, her family all moved to California because her father mm-hmm. couldn't stand working the steel mills in Pennsylvania anymore. And um, and my grandfather, Joseph Carlton, was rather notoriously racist, and 
he um he oh so he was rather than notoriously racist to give you an example he prohibited his youngest daughter from watching the Cosby show mind you this was in the 80s before before all everything that's come out recently so you know it was a very innocent program and mm-hmm. he, but he he would not allow her to watch the Cosby show so anyway so he had seven children six of the mm-hmm. seven of his seven children married people of color of all different races <laughs> So really? <laughs> me, and all, me and all of my cousins are mixed race, and I am half Japanese, half white. Two of my cousins are half black, half white, and then five of my cousins are half Mexican and half white. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, people say write what you know, and um, Marcus Garley, who was my one of my teachers, yeah. he was my teacher before. And it was an amazing writer and a phenomenal teacher. Mm-hmm. He writes, as he puts it, he writes about black communities in transition. And he is writing what he knows. He, you know, his father, he grew up in West Oakland. His father, assuming he's not sorry, he's a preacher, um, you know, he was, you know, grew up very much in uh, in that black community in the black church. And and but yet, what when I grew up, it was always in an extremely mixed race and even international in a way international community in mm-hmm. his family right ahead you know people from all over and and so um so i was always very aware of course my japanese heritage but also you know um that i had these european ancestors and then i was you know my first babysitter was my aunt from mexico you know born in mexico <laughs> with and um and then my my African American uncle in Georgia from Tifton in southern Georgia he uh, he's basically my second father. We are extremely close, and he has this large he also has a lot of siblings and um so when when I go down to with him to southern Georgia, I'm entirely embraced by this very you know this very large southern black family and so um and so i've I've almost never been in a monoracial environment myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so my experience as an Asian-American man, as a Japanese-American man, has pretty much always been also, first of all, that I'm mixed race, but also has been in a larger multiracial, multicultural fabric, uh, which is why I was drawn to ethnic studies. And I didn't major in Asian-American studies majored in ethnic studies, so looking at all of the diversity in the United States. Um, and so and so I think that's why I'm drawn to stories of interracial um, encounters, if you will, and hybridity, because that's, that's what's in my DNA, and so that's why El Rio has, uh, has black uh, Chicano or Latinx and um, and indigenous characters, they're also white characters, but all the white characters are played by Carla Pantoja, who's a Chicana actress, or Whiskerfish, which which we talked about last time, which is about Japanese characters, but they're in Peru, and so they're Japanese-Peruvian, and they're, there's also this prominent Afro-Peruvian character, and, and Aymara, indigenous-Peruvian character. And so it's I, I love those spaces where, um, which in a way could... Well, no, that one, it, they couldn't only happen in the United States, but, but, but 
almost most potently and most frequently these spaces exist in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Wow, wow. This is so interesting. Wow, and, you know, only only through art can you, you know, show that movement so well, right? I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, I mean, you know, as an artist, you can you can plot it out, <laughs> you know, in, in these yes. various, you know, plays, and then you can circle back <laughs> and, and then continue yeah. again and... Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's it's it goes to show you how how much of the ore that one needs to mine these this these riches you already oh, own sure. already a part of you, huh? Mhm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, so I'm yeah. I'm I'm bubbling up some new plays inside me and one of them is going to be uh me, a fictionalized version of me and my cousin Jimmy. Um mm-hmm. And uh, my who's half black, and my cousin half half black, half white, and my cousin David, who's half Mexican and half white, and it'll be the three of us through a <laughs> seance trying to communicate with our racist dead grandfathers. Oh, wow! So wow. we'll see when I write that. But that, that's 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 that'll probably be pretty much easier. So is that a, is that a new uh, genre for you? Sort of calling up. Um, dead people or or have you done that before and how successful were you (laughs) that will be in terms of specific fans and this will be on in a play form i don't expect to actually do it but oh maybe i should his research that that's in a way it's new but in a way ghosts and spirits have long been in my work mount misery which i Mm -hmm. believe you saw have lots of Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't so much the ghost of young frederick Douglass. it was fred Young Frederick but a lot of people read it as a ghost story, um, which is fine if they want to have that interpretation. Uh, Rio has ghostly, some ghostly characters in it, one in particular, and so I mean I will say that I'm always drawn to history, and I do feel like um, connections to what came before can I mean makes it makes some of the richest storytelling and can really. You know, even if it's a story set in the present, like El Rio is having that um, connection to, like, an open door to the past, and then, co- in a way, conjuring, conjuring that um, those spirits and inviting them, inviting them into the now. I think can really make for fantastic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you are a phenomenal storyteller. Wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, why did you move to New York? Um, how come you're not here anymore? Oh, it's the theater. <laughs> it's the theater theater capital of of the United States and one of the theater capitals of the globe. So I I, oh, I moved okay. I moved there in order to uh, advance my career. Okay, and is it going well? Um, as you know, it's not that you're there. It's going well. I've greatly expanded my uh, theatrical community, and although ironically, mm-hmm. since moving, most of my most of my work in terms of presenting my plays has been back in California. So, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, maybe you'll be the bridge, um, you know, um, between the two uh, coasts. Oh, I'd be honored. I'd be honored. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Cool. Well, gosh, I definitely want to be in the house when you come back and talk to Idris. And, um, uh, excellent. Wow. And, and, yeah, we look yeah, forward to welcoming yeah. you. 
Super, yeah, yeah. Well, safe travels, and wow, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And uh, maybe the next time we talk, we could um, incorporate um, your um, climate activism, you know, um, that that you have embarked on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think definitely... Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Just one minute on that because it's so important. So yes. I'm about to start a, a job uh, in New York City at the Climate Museum, which is the only museum in the United States so far dedicated to climate change. The oh. um, the mission is to cultivate a wide climate citizenry by which people talk about climate change with much greater frequency and then because people are concerned but kind of stay quiet about it. Um, Mm -hmm. the global climate strike this past week notwithstanding and so talking about it with regularity as a necessary step towards taking action and so I would encourage this is an issue that is so urgent it's undeniable that this is happening um, and it affects everyone regardless of where you're living uh, what your what your race is what your religion is what what your wealth level is this is um, it's the most dire moment, and and we need all hands on deck and all voices, and any skill you have can be used towards this effort. Even if you know you love to cook, okay, cook a meal for for uh, for a bunch of climate activists so they can have a meeting, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I'm happy to talk with anyone about this issue, especially as I become more knowledgeable and more involved, but. Um, I do want to put out a call to an activist group, which is international in scope. There's a thriving Bay Area chapter, and that is Extinction Rebellion. So if you just look up Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Oh, I like that. Extinction Rebellion or Extinction Rebellion uh, Bay Area, you will be able to find find info on them and, and, and probably join their efforts. So... Oh wow! Anyway, nice. thank you so much, Wanda. I so appreciate the time, and I look forward to seeing you in the house in a few weeks. And um, okay. and I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome, Andrew. And uh, safe travels. And yeah, look forward to seeing you in um in a few weeks after your plays had a chance to like have a few runs and knock out the kinks and just get all Absolutely. ready for you to be present and say, Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. I, I, have, I have high hopes. I have high hopes. Oh yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you've got some great folks, you know, representing those those marvelous characters you've developed. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Okay. You take care. We'll talk soon. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. You're welcome. Bye. So I want to let audiences know that um, this weekend, this Friday, um, is a. Uh, let me get the details here. Uh, just a second. Um, let's see. I'm just looking at it. Um, this Friday is a pay what you can uh, preview, eight o'clock at Bravo Theater Center in the Mission in San Francisco, and uh, and then opening night and the party after party is on Saturday the twenty eighth, and then Sunday there's a matinee at three um, each Sunday. The October 6th, October 13th, and October 20th are matinees. And the Friday, Saturday are 8 o'clock uh, performances. And, uh, and again, um, the weekend of the 18th, 19th, 20th, closing weekend, 
Um, there are going to be discussions with uh, the playwright, whom we just spoke to, Andrew Saito, and director Idris Cooper, Anifa Walshe. And um, our opening night, 35, general admission, uh, 25, early bird, 20, and, and then pay what you can on the 27th. And then it says, no one turned away for lack of funds, subject to availability. And I think that is throughout the run. So that's pretty cool. And I wanted to give you um wanted to give you the information about where the the theater is located. Um oh here it is. Twenty seven eighty one twenty fourth Street in San Francisco. And the phone number is four one five six four one seven six five seven or info at brava dot O R G. And again, uh Brava for Women in Arts, Brava Theater. All righty, so while we're waiting for our next guest oh, uh oh. <laughs> to join us, um, going to play a little music. Um, I was thinking about uh, I'm Michaela Gaston's Nature Boy, just because we're talking about rivers and migrations and ancestors. Very strange, enchanted boy. See, he wanders very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy, sad of but very wise was a he. Magic day, he passed my way. There always spoke of many things. Who's the king? All this he said to me. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love.
Thank you so much. So that was uh, Michaela Gaston. And um, <laughs> let's see, what are we going to play next? Um, we might stay on the uh, the river themes. Um, <laughs> oh, I like this one. Uh, we're going to play Ooh Chow. Love that one. I was going to play I've Known Rivers, but I really like Ooh Chow. <laughs>
Don't worry. As I, as I said before, we have a lot of smart people in the cast and a lot of passionate people. And we wanted to be very sensitive to the cultural differences. As you may know, we have Indian in the cast and Filipino mm-hmm. in the cast. So yeah. we wanted to we wanted to pay respect to the um, mythical existence of fairyland at the same time um, embrace those bodies that were present on the stage. And um, I think we found a happy medium, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. there was um, definitely a lot of discussion around it. And um, mm-hmm. we we walked carefully through it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah this and there's a large cast too. I mean, there are a lot of you all. <laughs> yeah, and, well, you know, this this time around, it's normally Theseus and um, Oberon is a shared role. The same person does mm-hmm. it, and Hippolyta mm-hmm. and Titania. But mm-hmm. I I wanted more bodies, so mm-hmm. they were okay with. Splitting those roads up. Oh, I just, okay. I wanted that. I wanted that presence. I wanted that presence, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that that uh, Leslie was absolutely okay with that. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, me closer to what I wanted to see. So I really appreciate all of the uh, highly melanated actors coming out auditioning <laughs> in Marin because it doesn't happen much. You know, for one, it's across the mm-hmm. bridge, and you know, it's, when you're an equity actor, it, it it may be worthwhile. But when you're not an equity actor, it it can be a burden. So mm-hmm. I was uh, very happy that so many did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, are any of these um, actors? Is this their first time? Um, you know, um, on the stage at um, for the 30th anniversary of um, Marin uh, Shakespeare Company. Is this their, like, debut there? Yes, many, most. Mm. I believe that nice. the, um, the ones who have, if I, if I can say the uh, OGs, if you will, would be, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, myself, <laughs> um, uh, Catherine, Catherine Glenn Smith, she's, Amazing. She's been there a few times. And mm-hmm. Eliza Boardman, she's been there. She was with me last year with uh, Pericles, and she was also in, I believe, was it Twelfth Night? Uh, she was in another production there. And and she, mm-hmm. we know we know the run. And Karen, Karen as right. well has been there. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, I believe, was uh, the first time. And mm-hmm. what was really Pleasant was my debut there. I believe it was Othello. That was right. a young man who was, in, who was in school, who was in the audience mm. at one of yeah. the matinees, and uh, and now he's Jacory Pierre. He's now on the stage with me in this production. So that really wow. Good. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And and also Michaela, who was at, uh, I believe, Oakland Check and wouldn't help mm-hmm. with their production. So I believe the farm. 
and they came to mm-hmm. the production at theater first, and she's on the stage. So that mm-hmm. all feels great. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, here's Leslie. Hi. Leslie. Hi. Perfect timing. We're just talking about all these wonderful actors, um, and some of whom, um, you know, this is their Marin uh, Shakespeare Company debut. But not the last time you'll see them on our stage. They're fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then I was also thinking about, you know, um, your artistic staff. I was um, looking at, you know, you've got composers. You've got, you know, with Christopher Grant, co-composer. Um, uh, and then you've got Regina Evans, costume designer, and uh, and your scenic designer, um uh, Mel Bratz, um, like she is awesome, and yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the folks that we don't necessarily talk about because they're not on stage, but we see their, you know, the work behind the stage is, is sort of facilitates, you know, the production that we are witnessing in the audience. Sure, uh, Chris Grant is just a really special composer. His when I when I listen to his work, it's really contemporary, and I can only describe it as weird. He just uses strange sounds and instrumentations, and I thought this will be perfect for the magical world that we're trying to create with this production. And Chris mm-hmm. allows us has allowed us to use his original music as our pre-show music, so you get to hear his music for an hour before the show begins as well. It's really really cool, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. And Regina Evans, our costume designer, she is just one of my heroes in life. Um, she she uh, was just nominated for an award for her one-woman show, 52 Letters, which is about her experience and others' experience with sex trafficking. It's one of the most powerful and important pieces of theater in the Bay Area, Um in, in recent memory, and and Regina sheds a very brutal and powerful and true light on the plight of young women who are um, often against their will um, uh, sold and trafficked and live in a hell 24-7. Uh, and the Bay Area is one of the central locations for this kind of of hideous and and heinous crime uh, against these young women. Uh, and Regina's plays just, um, it, it, it just makes you, makes you want to help. And, and Regina has a vintage clothing store in Oakland called Regina's Door, which is both a clothing store and a sanctuary for young women uh, who Regina helps uh, get out of this life. Um, so she's an amazing social activist, performer, costume designer. She's, when I first talked to her about doing the show, she said, well, here's how I work. I, I, I pray on it and I dream on it. And then the ideas come to me. And I was like, that is perfect for a Midsummer Night's Dream. And when we started seeing her beautiful costume designs and her amazing color palette, it was just um, just stunning. One of the one of the great things about this production, Regina's costumes. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the choreography is awesome too. Who's the choreographer? Uh, her name is Lauren Godla, and she's just a young, hip Bay Area dancer. Her specialty is dancing suspended from bridges. She does a lot of aerial dancing and choreography. She was just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. We loved working with Lauren. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about about the work. Um, and it's um, you know, concluding, um, you know, this 30th anniversary um, season, which is so exciting, you know, for your company. Congratulations again. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm certainly happy to be uh to have the closing show be this um. Mm-hmm great new direction for the company. I mean, it's um, the company has been pushing inclusion for a long time, and, and today we're seeing the results with this production of that coming into its own. And uh, I'm really hoping that more and more uh, actors of, of color in the Bay Area and even farther than that, we have actors, well, an actor from New York who would, would come and grace the stage and share the talent with the, uh, a lot of the population who otherwise wouldn't get to see them because a lot of people just see shows in Marin, and some of them go out to Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, but there are some people who are just, you know, travel is, is a bit of a burden, but they are regular patrons to that theater, mm-hmm. and it's good for them to get a chance to see other artists showcase their talent. So I'm loving the direction. Mhm. Yeah. So you're artist in residence, right, Damien? I am. I am. Yeah. yeah. How much longer? Um, it's uh every year we as look long as we can keep them. Well, what I appreciate about Leslie and the company in general, they are they are kind enough to want me there, but they are generous enough to want me to spread my wings. And if something wonderful comes along, they are encouraging me to grab hold of it because it's, mm-hmm. they've definitely expressed, shown a genuine interest in my well-being, and I appreciate that. It, it, it's good to work for a company that, you can feel cares about you, and uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Makes it easy to show up to work. <laughs> right, right. So, for our audience that's not familiar with um, the story of a Midsummer Night's Dream, perhaps you all could share the story, and then and then talk about those drives. Um, you know, um, to San Francisco um, that you tell us a little bit about. Um, in in the in the notes for the um, the program notes. Oh yeah, well Leslie, I think that's uh, that's your lane right there. You share that story, <laughs> and I just so wonderfully. <laughs> sure, it's it's actually a very easy to follow and accessible story. But when I start telling it, it's going to sound very complex. <laughs> the story starts with uh, Theseus, who is um, a, a great 
hero of Greek mythology. He had many heroic and romantic adventures. He um, and and the latest his latest adventure is that he's battled against the Amazons, the fierce female warriors, and he has won the queen of the Amazon, Hippolyta, in battle. And the penalty for being bested by Theseus is she has to marry him. She's not too thrilled about this. And um, Theseus has been married several times before. She's a fiercely independent woman, but that's, that's what happens when you get captured in battle. So Theseus is trying to tell her that, may, you know, it's not going to be all that bad being married to me. And he says, I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing the injury, but I will wed thee with a different key, with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling. So he's going to have a big party for their wedding. And, it's, and he's trying to say, it's going to be fun being married to me. So he sends the word out that he's looking for the very best entertainment for his wedding celebration a few days off. And then we meet a father named Aegeus who's come to Theseus with his daughter Hermia. And uh, Aegeus has come to ask Theseus to tell Hermia to obey him. Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius, but Hermia is in love with Lysander and wants to marry him, and Lysander loves Hermia back. Furthermore, Demetrius used to be engaged to Hermia's best friend, Helena, 